Hey up everyone, welcome to Yorkshire Gamer and here we are on round 33 of the Yorkshire Gamers Big War Games podcast and welcome one and all uh, to those who are regular listeners and to those who may be listening for the very first time, welcome to Yorkshire Gamer and today we are on one of our catch-up episodes so I'll have a little bit of chat about how that works in a minute um, but uh, in uh, Yorkshire Gamer news are uh, the Italian Wars game that uh, went down so well at Fiasco. I've just put something up on the blog about that. And that will be out on the road again on the 3rd of December at uh, my local show in Pudsey, which is called Recon. And uh, they sent me a, a booking form through and uh, I put down the table size, etc. And it said, is there anything else that you require? Uh, so I put Yorkshire Tea. I've never had a rider for a show before. You know, like these rock bands, they have um, M&Ms with the blue ones missing, that sort of thing. I, I thought Yorkshire Tea's um, a fairly decent one. I would imagine that they're asking whether you want electricity and that sort of stuff, but that's a bit too sensible. But there we go. Um, so if you want to see the Italian Wars game, you are near uh, Leeds at all, uh, come along to the Pudsey Show at Pudsey Civic Hall on the 3rd of December and come and say hello. You'll notice that uh, it's only two weeks since the last episode was out, episode 32 with Chris Flowers, which was one of my regular interview episodes. And I've just upped the pace just a little bit um, because I've got a lot of people booked in and um, uh, there was a bit of delay while my wife was uh, off sick, uh, injured following her accident. So I'm just picking up the pace a little bit and we're probably going to have one every couple of weeks up till Christmas now. And it has meant that I've had to push one of the guests back to the new year. Uh, and the new year is now looking pretty full all the way through to May, uh, June time already, would you believe? So that's a fantastic thing. I have to say that so many people are willing to come on the podcast uh, for a start because, you know, not everyone wants to talk uh, live on air. Well, not live on air, but recorded, you know what I mean. And uh, it's great to have so many people who want to come on the podcast. Uh, the problem I have is that, you know, people will contact me and say, oh, um, I'd love to come on your, your show. I've got this book coming out. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and if it's something I'm interested in, then I'm quite happy to get somebody on. Um, but I, I said to uh, one guy last week, "When's it out?" Oh, in a couple of weeks' time. I'm sorry, got absolutely no chance. Um, you know, I'm not going to let people down uh, who have been waiting to come on the podcast. I, you know, I've got people who've been waiting since the beginning that I haven't managed to get around to. We are full up of guests. Uh, if I take everyone on my list, um, we're going to be here in 2026. Um, and that's without me coming up with any other daft ideas for show formats, etc. So on to the episode itself. And uh, this is a catch-up episode. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, I delve back into the past shows and uh, those of my previous guests who were stupid enough to answer the phone um, end up back on the show and we talk about what they've uh, done in, since they were on. And, uh, you know, we've been going for 
coming up to two years now. Uh, so we've got a decent amount of guests to drop back into and to speak to. So my first guest this evening is uh, somebody that we spoke to uh, not that long ago, about eight, nine months ago, uh, Simon Miller. And uh, Simon is the author of To the Strongest Rules, very popular set of rules. And uh, this uh, my episode with Simon uh, was the most popular single guest episode I've, I've ever done. Um, some of the brews in the Binyard ones uh, proved a little bit more popular, but Simon is a he's, he's a big draw. Is the lad? He's a big draw, big name, up in headlights. Uh, so uh, sit back, get yourself a cup of tea, and uh, let's spend an hour with Simon and uh, see what he's been up to. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to uh, another one of the little interview sections on this catch-up edition. And uh, we don't have to go too far back in time for this one. It was episode 22 in March of this year when I sat down and spoke to Simon Miller. So, hello, Simon. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ken. How are you? Uh, Excellent. Excellent. Lovely to see you again. We had a little bit of a chat at Partizan. Yes, yes. And we'll 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 have a chat about your round way down game uh, oh, shortly. Oh yes. Uh, did you go to the second partisan? I don't. I didn't think um, I saw you there. I didn't. It's just a little late in the year for me um, because of the drive. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I have to leave really early to get up there, so I, uh, you have to drive up in the dark and drive back in the dark, and it's just a little bit, uh, just so a little, a tad too late for me. You're a spring partisan man. I am. I'm. It is the first one I've missed in about a decade, I guess, eight years, yeah. um, and I feel bad about that. But um, it's difficult. There's a, I've got a lot going on always, and uh, um, I'll definitely be at the, uh, the the first one next year. Maybe I'll make the second one. Excellent, excellent. Well, it's always good to see you around at the shows. Um, Mm. And uh, regular listeners will no doubt remember back to the episode that we did with Simon. And um, unfortunately, we were cut a little bit short because uh, Simon was booted out of the room by his wife, who had something much more important to do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she has an actual job. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and we were just chatting away about toy soldiers and war we're games, so That's so we were cut, cut short, quite rightly so as well. Well, um, it's a, a mercy, mercy that sometimes these things come to an end because I could talk the hind legs off a donkey. Ah, uh, don't worry, you're, you're we're in the same group here. We're the same group. Uh, and at the end of that, tep- you'd already dropped the Sabo bases bomb on me during the uh, oh, war games yes, room. Controversial, yeah, controversial since, subject. Since, since that moment, Simon, I have been unable to miss them. Well, before I would have glanced past them and and maybe oh. you know not paid attention, but now it's like these two big red arrows pointing at these ginormous bases every time I see them. So... I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry about that. No, I mean I I I wouldn't mind playing with Sabo bases. I was being a bit tongue in cheek. No, it's, uh, that's what that's what that section's all about. It's everyone in this hobby uh, is really friendly and really really helpful, and it's a fantastic place to be. But we all deserve to have our little niche hatreds. That there's just something personal to us that you know 
we just can't stand. <laughs> that was a great yeah. one, mate. That was a great yeah. one. Oh, good. I'm and glad I, you. I'm glad you thought so. I, I saw some figures uh, a couple of couple of three days ago, um, and they were they were a smaller scale, and the be- they were, the base was nearly as thick as the figures were. And I, I just thought of you straight away, Simon. Just thought of you. Straight it, away. it is. Yeah, it's it's really nice when you can actually get the figures right down next to the table. I mean, you know, in an ideal world, something like a less than one mil thick metal base that would have maybe an irregular edge and the figures just built up slightly on top of it. That would look, that would look super. I think my friend Andrew's got uh, some like that. Uh, Yeah. 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 And um, that was the very subject that we were going to come on to when we ended. Um, And that was, that was the big red bat painting tis wavy base (laughs) (laughs) wobbly edge base how did they how did they come about we we drunk one night cutting a base out and tell me about these wavy bases right well i can remember the very moment that the idea came to me um i was in a show i was in a car with my friend ian coming back from a show at reading driving through the dark and we were stuck in traffic somewhere near slough and um it was the third or fourth time I'd run a, run one of my games at shows with the big grids. And um, I just thought, I don't need to have rectangular bases anymore because I don't need to have rectangular bases because we, there's no measurement. Um, I mean, the figures are just markers, really. So why, why would I have rectangular bases? The next week I came back and um, designed some... Um, irregular edged bases, um, which uh, I still sell. And in fact, they're my most popular um, item that I sell like that. Kind of like an oval, almost an oval, but a rectangle with the corners rounded off and irregular edges. Um, and I do a standard size and narrower skirmish base and a deep base. And that meets most people's needs for that sort of thing. Um, that came directly from that call. Oh, so are they bases for like an entire unit? Does a unit sit on these bases or are they like a traditional figure uh, where you'll have like five or six bases to a unit? Um, Well, I've got two systems. The original system um, has bases that are about 12 and a half centimetres wide. Mm. So um, I would mount a whole unit on that. um, And they're really good for, they're like an impetus style base, if you like. Mm. I, I like that scenic look that impetus had for their units i think it's um, it's absolutely terrific the only and they're very good a lot of people use those for on a 15 centimeter group for our tournaments or just for basing their armies on mm. sometimes get a little thrill when i see people are selling figures on ebay mounted on those units <laughs> then we've got uh, other bases that are slot together um where the edges slot together um that's clever the, so for that you have typically two or three bases to a unit um there are different designs of base um some of the bases are uh the 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 favorite base the 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 biggest seller is about six and a half centimeters wide and deep and usually people put well i put two or three uh, ranks of figures usually on a a 15 or 20 centimeter 15 or 20 millimeter frontage um, onto those and the big advantage of those over the other system is that um, I can use those both for when I'm wanting to play on a 15 centimetre grid, when I'll have two bases, um, or I can have three bases uh, wide on a on a 20 centimetre grid. 
they're, so they're quite a lot more flexible. And um, because the, the, the edges are irregular, you don't, when you've got two or three of them together, you don't tend to see the joins within the uh, unit. So if you look at my, some of my 1672 figures, that they tend to look like they're mounted on one big 20 centimetre wide base, 19 mm. centimetre wide base. Whereas in fact, they're, um, they're mounted on um, um, three separate bases. And I've got other bases, so you can add an extra strip of figures or an extra rank um, behind. There are, I've got a number of different systems. Uh, so I can usually find something to meet my own needs, which is what they were all designed for in the first place. And they've got a bit of a, a following. I've, I've seen quite a few of them around. Yeah. Not, not just for yeah, your yeah, game yeah. systems either, for, for other systems. Uh, they have proved surprisingly popular. Um, I mean, I never thought anyone would want to play a grid-based <laughs> game in the first place. Um, and let alone people would want bases that weren't square. But um, it turns out they are, they are quite popular. In fact, I shift, shift a lot of those. I think I've had like three or four orders today, I think. Wow. Um, all over the world. I was I was amused. I was selling some to a chap in Canada yesterday. The wood probably came from Canada in the first place. So they proved very popular. They're just a little bit, they're a little bit different. They're quite nice to play with. And aesthetically, I, I think especially if you chamfer the edges, so you've got that, that they do kind of sink away into the table in, a, in an yeah. attractive way. Yeah, so you, we've kind of got the, the the new church of the wavy bases, and you're mm. you're spreading the gospel throughout the world. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I, I mean, I really like them. So I spend a lot of time on basing. Um, you know, I typically um, there's a way of so okay. So I designed the bases, and then I thought, oh, I'm going to have to stick magnetic sheet under these. And I thought, what a hassle. That's You have to cut it to the irregular edges. And my next bright idea was to pierce the bases to take um, rare earth magnets. Ah, um, good. So most of the bases take six or eight rare earth magnets mm. that, are, that fit into holes in the bases. And those, the, the great advantage of the magnets is obviously if you're, all my figures go in really useful boxes, I line the, mag the really useful boxes with steel sheet, uh, which I sell. Um, yeah. um, that's been a surprisingly big seller too. <laughs> um, it's funny, all the things I like doing seem, seem quite popular to other people too. So you put in your six or eight uh, magnets and then it keeps the base safe for storage. But the other great thing about it is that it stops the base warping when you apply all your mm, wet glue yeah. over the top, your textured stuff. Often it's mm. that moisture that makes the base curl up. The great thing is it keeps them flat while the the group dries to concrete like hardness, and I don't think after that they're ever going to warp. Um, to be that's, that's like an unexpected advantage to them, then. Yeah, it is. I worked out a way of fitting the magnets, which I probably ought to tell other people about. Um, that <laughs> after I used to I put the magnets in, then put the super glue on to hold the magnets in place. It's quite quick to do. Mm. Um, but invariably, some of the superglue would stick the bases to uh, the, me the metal tray that I assembled them on. But I found out if you put underneath the um, if underneath the um, uh, base, you just stick a sticker. Um, I, bought, I bought thousands of labels, some of which yeah. are conveniently six centimeters square, and I just stick a label underneath. <laughs> then I fit the magnets, and uh, it's really quick. 
Yeah. It's really quick. And I've got thousands of these bases made up in different configurations in, in, in the other room. And the, when I'm basing the unit up, I just go and get the, the relevant ones. I still base some figures on square bases, on rectangular bases, mm. um, where I started off armies on those bases. But for all the new armies, I do all of those on a, on a wobbly-edged uh, base. Brilliant. Have you got a, is there a wavy base Facebook group? <laughs> <laughs> no, there isn't. It's a good idea, though. I yeah. Like we need to I start like one. We need to start Dare one. Dare to be different. <laughs> Dare to be different. Oh, yeah, that's, fun so, um, that's fantastic. So, yeah, they, they were, I, I did those for, I, 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 most of my new figures go on to those, except where I'm matching old armies. And I did them in different systems. My, English Civil War ones were based so that the units came out about 25 centimetres wide, mm. which is quite wide. And I've later kind of settled for a 19 centimetre wide units for my new 1672 stuff. We'll probably chat about later. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because it, I can get more units on the table mm. um, with that. I still get quite a number of figures to a unit. Um, yeah, that's what we like to see. That's what yeah, we like to absolutely. see. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, yeah, yeah. We're, not, we're not we're not skimping and cutting corners with figures on this show. No, uh, absolutely <laughs> not. Get that lead on the table. I mean, exactly. Lead, I mean, <laughs> exactly. And speaking of lead on tables, um, you, you did a your round way down game. Um, yes. You took that to. I saw it at Partisan. Did you take it anywhere else? Um, I took it to Partisan and uh, Colours. Ah, brilliant! Was, yeah, very popular. Very popular at both shows. Um, it was, yeah, it's great. Met, met so many people. Biggest damn hill ever, I think. Well, apart from uh, what James Morris did a six foot high hill at uh, Karen at one of the salutes. Apart from that, I think it would have a reasonable claim to being a pretty volume, high volume hill. Yeah, it had a, quite an interesting construction, didn't it? It was, um, yeah, it wasn't a normal. E no. EU, EU health and safety regulated construction. Uh, so no, was, how did um, how did you put it together? It had about fifty or sixty empty, really useful boxes, which gave the bulk to the hill. And on top of mm. those were about uh, a dozen uh, boards in various sizes, mostly four by twos. Effectively, the really useful boxes are stacked in piles, a bit like a Roman hypercoast. And on right, top yeah. of those, yeah, on top of those, you've got the the boards go, um, um, and then the we taped the boards together for a little bit of extra strength, and then we laid over a, um, a carpet gripper, which really does help keep you if you're assembling some complex terrain. It does help hold it all together, and um, then the cloths on top of that, and uh, it was really good. I did, I I, I was threatening to stand on it. Um, to demonstrate its strength, but uh, I bought uh, I bought it at the last minute because it did take. As, it, I was going to say, is that when the men with the white coats came to take you off the table? They, just they probably they probably would have. Um, they probably would have. I'm convinced it would have taken my weight, and you know they held together for both the both the games. It was, it was a lot of fun. As I say, we tried to put the taller players at the uh, uh, the parliamentarian yeah. end of the table. Quite nail biting games as well. And was that run as a uh, participation game or was it a display? Um, no, it's participation. I, I, I haven't, I don't think I've ever done a display game. They're always played. 
Mm. Um, if you come up and the game isn't playing, that's typically because I haven't managed to find enough players. Occasionally, um, you know, people want to go to a show and buy war yeah. games figures and things like that mm. uh, rather than play my silly games. And uh, <laughs> uh, I usually manage to pre-book some people, but if I'm if I if I've been unusually crap, um, that may not be the case. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, we always do participation, and the rules are pretty simple. So people manage to pick them up. You know, you can more or less teach someone to play at a show. Yeah, and um, did you did you run through it a few times in a day? Um, yeah, we did. Um, we usually do twice a day: one in the morning, one in the afternoon. About two hours a two hours ago, because no one wants to play immediately. They come into a show; mm, they want to get a bit of a look yeah. around. So we usually kick off around eleven, eleven for two hours, and then have a half hour break, and then two hours sometime in the afternoon. They went down very well. So that was my. Do you remember the scores on the doors? Do you remember which side won eat the most? Oh, gosh. Um, I honestly can't say I do. Was there a win for both sides at some stage? Yeah. It, it, yeah. I mean, it, it was a very even one. It was all, mm. tended to be teetering on the, you know, one or two victory medal uh, points. Um, I think oh. both, sides have, both sides have won it. Um, mm. It's. Um, I certainly remember parliamentarians won the last game. They were really thundering down that hill um uh but i know the royalists won some too so i can't remember what the overall the overall uh, the overall score is um, on no. that one no, uh, just, yeah. obviously we're just rooting for the royalists that's all just hoping that they would win oh and they definitely did win some of the games they definitely excellent. did win some of the excellent. games yeah. they're the ones they're the ones that we'll talk about later. <laughs> yeah and yeah. um i've i've also seen that you took uh I'll let you pronounce this, a different game to Selwig? Yeah, we took second Mantinea. Mantinea, there we go. Mantinea to Selwig. Um, that's a game I uh, I designed years ago um, that we played. I think I only ever played it at the War Games Holiday Centre as one of the four or five games mm. I, I used to run there in parallel. It's the famous battle between the um, Thebans and the uh, Spartans and Athenians in this case um, and various other minor states um it's got um the thebans have um epaminondas their general and the what i call the mega phalanx it's the 25 rank deep um block of thebans um oh, that um, hurtles across the battlefield i think like the prow of a warship <laughs> i think one of the contemporaries <laughs> described it as yeah and tries to smash through the uh, the uh, athenian spartan line it's a very it's a very good game um Part of the reason I dusted it off was that I haven't for years been to the Society of Ancients Battle Day. And I noticed nice. that they picked it as their game for next year. And I decided that I'm going to go to the Battle Day, take that game and uh, um, have some fun with it. Oh, brilliant. Um, so um, after running the game at Selwig, I've been busy um, basing up more figures for it Um I've raided my reserve boxes of painted <laughs> and unbased figures uh, to get get some more units together. In fact, I bought an army off um, Red Zed. Um, he had some Spartans. Oh, um, brilliant! Um, and um, it's going to have a well, cost not thousands, but you know, six or seven hundred mm. figures, I should think, um, yeah. by the time we run it in the spring. Um, yeah. I'm rebasing a load of stuff um, for it too. So it's really good. It's an interesting battle. The, um, the the Thebans have got the edge. There are more Thebans. They've got this massive 
battering ram of a of a phalanx. <laughs> it's uh, it's still pretty even, you know. Spartans are Spartans. They're 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 tough. They've got yeah. some advantages in manoeuvre, and um, uh, it's been really really interesting. Been fascinating uh, looking at it. I've been trying to model. It's kicked off a whole load of things with me. Um, there's this, we have a Spartan army list, and I've after running the game, I've got very enthused, and I I found some more things that I think make it even more Spartan. Um, I'm going to have the uh, Skiritai, who are the the Spartans had this um, uh, light, th this phalanx of hillmen from Skiritis in uh, northern uh, Laconia, um, mm -hmm. who uh, guarded the vulnerable left of their line. And it's, it never never occurred to me to model it before. As so I'm modelling the Skiritai um, for the left of the line, and I'm going to do some ekdromoi, which are runners out there, um, mm -hmm. where the when the uh, when a phalanx was threatened um, by light troops, um, the younger uh, phalangites could run run out with their big shields and try and chase off the light troops. Ah, and, uh, right, yeah, makes sense. So uh, I'm working on those at the moment. It's a lot of fun. Really interesting. It's really getting to the history of it. Very early combined arms. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. brilliant, brilliant, and. Uh, the uh, how did you find the attendance at those shows? It, it, was it the partisan was quite busy both times I went this year? Yeah, partisan was very busy. Um, Stalwick, um, it was actually it was it wasn't as busy as um, it wasn't as busy as um, the partisan, but it was there were a lot of people there actually. It was a lot of fun. Um, we got to run the game again twice once in the morning, once in the afternoon. Uh, both times to a conclusion. Um, I think the Thebans won twice, but I never remember um, at the end of the. <laughs> I, I, I never remember at the end of the day um, um, who won. So, but I th think they won twice uh, there. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Got to meet some old friends, make some new ones. It was good to get those figures out again. They haven't been out for a few years, so. It was great to see them all and remember what I'd got and think of some new projects and so forth. Excellent, excellent. <laughs> so um, I've been uh, keeping up on your on your um, various postings on Facebook and on your your yeah. your, uh, your, your blog, etc. And you've been chipping away on a number of projects and um, too many, too many, too many. <laughs> not, not focused enough, young man. Sixteen seventy two. Dutch is what I've seen, yeah. and I've got to admit, um, I don't know much about this. So, uh, what's the what's oh. this, and where it where is it going? Where is it going? Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, the, I, the, I was first attracted to the period when I saw some of the lovely Copperstone sculpted figures. Originally, uh, I think it was run uh, under a range called the Glory of the Sun yeah. uh, by by um, Copperstone. I think. He sold it on to North Star, and they called it their North Star 1672 range. The re thing that really sold it to me is the length of the coats. I, I'm, I'm um, just obsessed that they just look so good. It, yeah. They have these coats that go down to roughly their knees, so longer than you'd get in the Thirty Years' War, or the English Civil War, mm. um, called a Justicor. Um, and they have loads of buttons. They have buttons on their buttons, uh, button pockets, <laughs> buttons on the back. Uh, buttons, buttons everywhere. Just these most fantastic uh, coats uh, with short sleeves and, and they have puffy shirts that come out. Of them. Mm. So the figures look fantastic. And I, I bought some of these. Um, I was thinking of using them for 
Sedgemore, another project that I haven't carried through to a conclusion. It just took a life of its own, and I got really interested in, into the 1670s. So I've been doing a lot of reading on it. I've bought all the Hellion books and a few other books as well. And it, basically, there are, there are a couple of wars with the um, mainly between the well, initially between the French and the uh, Spanish in the Low Countries, mm. and then between the um, the French and the Dutch. The Dutch call it the, the uh, my pronunciation is going to be terrible. The Rump Yard, <laughs> the disaster yeah. year, um, because the basically the the French did a it's, it's a bit like the Russian U- invasion of Ukraine. Massive mm. forces, hugely outnumbering the Dutch, poured into the country, um, overrunning about half of it before the Dutch managed to flood the fields and hang on by their fingernails until the winter came and. Um, then they managed to do a couple of counterattacks and get their armies up but, uh, and, and, and eventually fight the French off. Um, and the British were on, fought on both sides in the war. And although it's mainly French versus Dutch, you can have British, German, lots of Swiss, Polish. Um, there was, there's this regiment called the, uh, the Courland Dragoons who uh, um, have... Um, furry hats, furry dragoon hats with uh, long um, bits that stick up and a tassel on the end, a bit like a nightcap. Mm. Um, they, look, they look absolutely fantastic. They've all got sort of moustaches and um, they're very, very uh, fierce. And that it's absolutely great because on the one hand, you've got the, the might of uh, France with all of the elite units. It's a bit like um, the French army is a bit like Napoleonic's. You've got mm. like the, there's a sort of imperial guard almost, of inner guard of the the Maison du Roi of uh, royal mm. units in red. And then there's a slightly slightly less posh um, gendarmerie and other regiments. And then gradually you work your way down to line cavalry. And that, I mean, it was a huge war, um, huge, huge numbers of troops. I've been collecting them and um, getting them painted. I've got, um, I've got various people painting them at the moment. Um, mm. And... Um, Essentially, my plan for those is to carry on with the painting of those through the um, the winter until salute. And after salute, then I'll concentrate on getting them all based up. Um, mm. I mean, I have got 20-odd regiments, mostly painted, about four based. Um, but I haven't got many cavalry yet. Yeah, I was going to say tactics-wise then, we're kind of pre-war of Spanish and Austrian succession. Um post English yeah. Civil War. So we're kinda of yeah. still still pike still pike and shot, is it? Yes. Um yeah. almost all of the units have got about a third pike, two thirds shot um, mm. on the wings as you'd expect. Um the cavalry tactics, um well I'm I'm trying to do some research on that at the moment. Um wouldn't be unrecognizable to someone in the English Civil War and certainly wouldn't be unrecognisable to someone in the War of the Spanish Succession. It's a sort of transitional thing. There aren't any particularly new weapons. Um, the, the socket bayonet is coming in um, in some, I think, round about then in some of the French mm. units where it might... Yeah, no, it's around about that time the French are starting to experiment with the socket bayonet. Um, so there's nothing hugely different to it, but it's a bit different to the English Civil War. You've got... The battalions look very much like battalions. They're, they're, they're five or six ranks deep, and they march forward in lines. It's very linear. You have lines, two, usually two lines of infantry with a battalion in the rear line supporting one in the front line, and on the 
wings, two or three rows of um, squadrons of horse, mm. um, which I'm still researching a little bit how they fought. But it just looks great. The uniforms are great. The flags are great. Um, you've got this plucky Dutch fighting off the invading French. Um, um, the you've got Spanish with these slightly weird uniforms. So there was a, there's an earlier walk of the War of the Devolution, where the Spanish, uh, where the French did a blitzkrieg against the Spanish and did a bit of a job on them. Um, that's that's a fun one to do and. Um, as the war goes on, you can have uh, British units coming in, Scots. Um, it's great. Excellent. It's really great. So I'm, I'm enjoying that a lot. Excellent. So that's the uh, 1672 Dutch project. Uh, you did a little tinkering about with your Italian wars and your Swiss, I noticed as well. Yeah, I had them out. I got my um, I got my Swiss out. I used them as a, um, a tournament army uh, mm. a couple of times um, uh, this year. We're great. I had great fun with them. They're quite an army to use, really. They're not for the faint hearty. <laughs> I, I don't suppose I don't suppose subtlety comes in with tactics with them. Well, there is a sort of subtlety. There's a lot a lot of skill in the deployment of them. Um, you really need to, in, in my rules, outscout the enemy, and then mm. otherwise you find you put your Swiss down. If it, the the opposite is true, you put your Swiss down, and then the enemy deploy anywhere but in front of your Swiss. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was one game where I one game where I was chasing the enemy around the table trying to catch up with them as they uh, ran away faster than me. Classic tactic of avoiding <laughs> contact. <laughs> but they're a really good army. They're very they're very formidable. They're they're, they're very fast. They're, they're nasty. Um, um, and I, I had great great fun. Great great fun with them. Uh, must have played about ten games with them or. 15 this year and yeah. really, really enjoyed them. We went to a BritCon um, in the mm. summer. First time I've been to BritCon. Absolute party. It was really, really oh, great good. fun. I have slightly longer to play a game. So um, once uh, there's a game I've never, the chap I've never managed to finish a game against. Uh, we've never had enough time to finish a game. <laughs> so we agreed we'd, we'd play a game through to a conclusion and it oh. took four hours. We played wow. on into the evening. We were the yeah. last people. The, the, the security guards were <laughs> stood there looking at the watch. The <laughs> but we, no, we had a lot of fun. A lot of fun at BritCon. Brilliant. So I have those a, out. Yeah, you've done quite a few competitions this year, haven't you? I have, yeah. Um, I like to go to competitions because I don't really get to play at home. Um, and I haven't got a club uh, around me. So... The main time I get to play my rules is in a sort of bingy way at competition. So mm. I, I had my Swiss. Um, I've taken my um, uh, Indian army um, to some uh, classical Indian army to some tournaments as well with all its elephants, 16 elephant models. Um, that was fun. And I took um, the last one. I took an uh, Imperial Seleucid army too, which was mm. which turned out to be a really good army. wasn't too wasn't too shabby in the fighting department either. Yeah, uh, excellent. Lots of uh, lots of side chariots and elephants and um, pipe phalanxes and yeah, it was good. <laughs> really good fun. And how how do, how does your opponent feel in those situations when they're fighting the rule writer? <laughs> well, um, I like to say I, I I try not to be too hard on them. Do you actually? Uh, no, in practice they 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 quite often beat me. So. Um, <laughs> Is it is there any time when you've had to hold the rules up and just point at the name at the bottom? Um, um, no, I mean, there's a certain extra. Uh, sometimes, I mean, I'm, I, 
I'm by no means because I only get to play five or six days a year. Yeah. Um, I'm not always right on top of the rules. I do make mistakes. Yeah. In the last uh, tournament, I, I got I got one aspect of the rule badly wrong. We actually had to redo a couple of turns because I, I told him he couldn't do something. And then I realised after a couple of turns that he absolutely could do what he'd been intending to do. We just yeah. had to wind it back and and, and sort of restart. Um, so, and, you know, the, the tournament organiser who comes along and asks me to adjudicate a rule is really taking his life into his hands. <laughs> <laughs> I can definitely direct him to people who have a better grasp of the rules than do I. I mean, yeah. I do all right. I'm usually around the middle or the sometimes, sometimes um, in the, the upper half of the, yeah. the the tournament rankings. But I'm not the not the best player. I am fairly competitive, but I'm not far from being the most competitive uh, player. Mm. I like to think at least. <laughs> well, it, it, it's good. To, it's good to see that you've got the the grace to to uh, say I'm I'm not hundred percent sure with these rules, and I wrote them. Yeah, well, you know, you see, I kind of wrote the rules, and I rewrote the rules, and I rewrote the rewrites, and then yeah. I wrote several other sets of rules, and they're all jumbled up in my brain. So, if you ask me uh, for a, a rule adjudication, you might get one that's from like. 2016 or you might yeah. get one that's from 2025 that hasn't yeah. yet been published uh so it's hazardous very hazardous oh perfect um and uh when we were speaking in the in the in the episode you mentioned the, the renaissance version of the rules <laughs> and you you promised us all that they would be out oh, by autumn oh, yeah i know so go on um, what excuse no, have we got I've, this done a, I've done a, i've done a bit more of i've done a bit more on those but i haven't done a great deal um yeah. i had a i got close to what i thought was actually releasing some and then i just thought there's some aspects of these that are just over complex and right um, so I re revisited them and stripped them back a little bit and simplified things. And um, I'm kind of working on, gone a bit away from um, the original set. And I, the more I think about it, that so many things in the original set are great. I've kind of been removing some of the changes that I was mm. making and getting closer to the original set. Mm. So they're still going on at a slow rate. Um, I have would say in my defence, apart from the fact I've been busy with things non-war gaming i've done um i have spent a lot of time working on the army lists some more rules in the even stronger thing um i may have written a book yes you, you <laughs> dropped you, dro you dropped I this have, on me in the pre-chat yeah, yeah uh, i may have, may have well i may have half written the book um so i heard this morning um um from hellion that a book um that i i helped um there's a chap called um, Massimo Predonzani in Italy. Yes. He's yeah. been writing a book, a series of books on the Italian wars for them. Um, mm. And I heard he was writing a book about a battle that I intend to be the test battle for the um, the Renaissance set, mm. um, which I'd done a lot of research on. Um, yeah. I heard he was writing this, and um, I had a copy of his original book in French, um, and um, I, I had some new insights um, I felt to offer him, and I sent him my new insights. And... Uh, about a week later, he came back and said, well, would you like to rewrite all the sections relating to the actual battle? And I thought, wow, oh, he probably wouldn't mind that, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so um, he was very nice and very patient with me uh, as I butchered all these chapters and, and really rewrote the battle, moving it from the place where 
even the local authority in in uh, Cheresole think the battle took place. I don't think it took place there. Right. I've moved it to a slightly less glamorous location on an industrial estate. But anyhow, that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> they won't be pleased when they have to redirect their battlefield walks from beautiful country lanes flanked with olive trees to Il Fornace Industrial Estate. Um, no. Past the, past the Italian version of Lidl. And, uh, <laughs> it's not as nice as Lidl. <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to remember the Italian supermarkets because we've spent quite a lot of time. Mercato is one of them. I can't remember. There's quite a few of them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that, that's, that would be interesting. So for the for the uninitiated then, um, are we 15, what was it, 15? 1544. 44. Um, um, just give us a brief premise of the battle. Yeah, so the French and the um, uh, Imperials have been fighting for control of um, Turin mm. with one hand getting one getting the upper hand and the other one getting the upper hand. The French haven't fought a proper pitched battle for 20 years um, mm. since the uh, Imperials did a real um, job on them at Pavia uh, for various circumstances, for various reasons. They, they decide that they're going to finally risk a battle and they take the field against the Imperials and... Um, the two armies meet um, near uh, Cheste de Alba, which is a sort of hilltop, um, very attractive looking town, um, mm. which I haven't visited, although I have driven around it several thousand times on Google Street View. <laughs> uh, I, I know every inch of it from yeah. Google Street View, um, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> which is a great tool for researching a battlefield. Yeah. Um, and um, um, I did a lot of research on it. I, I, I learned French um, so that I could read the, understand the French text better. Um, oh, brilliant. Um, so it took me a while, um, but it's a, it's a really good battle. It's not very well known because in the aftermath of the battle, the French won the battle, but they kind of lost the war. Mm. So it's not, it's not one that the French talked about that much um, afterwards. But it is a terrific battle. It's very, um, you've got uh, pipe blocks, you've got lots of arquebusiers um, all over the place. Um, you've got um, French gendarmes, you know, really heavy cavalry, Swiss, Landschnecks, bad war massacres. You've yeah. got Blaise de Montluc, who's my, my personal hero, <laughs> um, and a, a real terrific uh, sort of picaresque adventurer, come captain, come general, come marshal of France, mm. who, 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 who's, you've got to read his account, it's so exciting. Uh, so it's a great battle. It's a really great battle. It's very manageable. I think it's a, it'll be, it a, should be a popular battle for war gamers because mm. um, I think I've helped make a lot more sense of it because I'm, I'm a war gamer more than a historian. I think it's now kind of managed to explain a little bit about how the battlefield worked and why the battle mm. took place the way that it did. Um, so, what, so what, sort, what sort of size forces are they on both sides? Sort of fifteen to 20,000 mm. range. There's some controversy about the number of French cavalry there. Um, I think there were a lot more French cavalry than some of the accounts um, mm. believe were actually present, which is, I think, what in the end helped the French win it. Um, but, you know, we is present that, is some that, of is that because they were, they were counting lances rather than yes. individuals. Yeah. Uh, and I've, I think I've that's seen that happens. a few times. Yeah. Because basically, um, you know, the, the Montluc says, oh, the 
this this uh, lord had 50 uh, gendarmes and this lord had 80 and this lord had mm. um, 80 and people tend to add those up and think that is the formation that was there yes. but for basically they were in a lance and for every gendarme there were probably two or three archers yeah some of the archers were detached and fought on one flank but mm. it's likely that there were at least as many archers and possibly even two archers for every gendarme Mm. Uh, in the main body so um and some of the accounts uh, actually uh, some of the accounts talk about the french having a lot of cavalry present french accounts which had mm. no reason to lie about the number of cavalry and i yeah. think there were a lot of them around yeah. um it's, it's something it, i've it's something i've toyed with in terms of game of unit representation is to have a front rank of gendarme with a, a second rank of lesser armored squire types if you like yeah uh, and i think that that would be a better representation yes i think the french archers were depending on where you are in history they were quite well they weren't as heavily armored as gendarmes mm. but they yeah, would have had a, um, a, a lance or a light lance and um you know pretty much play mostly play mostly full play armor um and i think even the um, the cavalry that are called light cavalry at the battle weren't light cavalry in the yeah, skirmishing sense. sense. They were light <laughs> yeah. cavalry in that they were lighter than gendarmes. But there was it was a it was a terrific battle, very, very bloody, um, mm. terrible massacres, blood literally, you know, five, ten thousand people killed. Um yeah. uh, particularly in the Imperialist army, that was that was really, mm. really uh, beaten about. But uh, but a very interesting battle, and uh, I think one that people would be able to reconstruct, especially um, if I ever get my uh, rules published, because I have got a scenario written for the battle. Yeah. Um, because originally I got interested in the battle because I was trying to work out exactly how a Renaissance battle took place. So I thought I'd look at one in real detail. Um, and I have a scenario that fits on a 12 by 8 box grid with mm. units that would be pretty recognisable to anyone that plays um, to the strongest. Obviously, with 20, 20 years on from Pavia, had had much changed tactically and and weapon wise, or are we um, in in that classic pike block arquebusier phase? Basically, you've got your pike block, um, you've got your arquebusiers on the wings of the mm. pike block, but I think at the battle, um, a lot of the arquebusiers were detached. Almost all the arquebusiers mm. were detached, and this they had this mammoth four to five hour skirmish with thousands and thousands of arquebusiers marching around in this low valley between the two lines shooting it out and i think by the time the battle proper started most of the arquebusiers had effectively been expended um mm. they they felt they'd done their duty and uh bug it um, off. off yeah bug it <laughs> off no exactly i was going to say bug it off then i wondered if i should be polluting your, uh, your, your 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 show with my foul language but oh, anyhow, they, um, yeah <laughs> So, um, so by the time of the actual, it came to push a pike. I don't think there were that many arquebusiers left around the pike blocks, um, mm. and it was so it was an unusual battle. In that it was a, there was a mammoth skirmish. Other things that had changed: um, the Spanish were the Spanish managed to keep um, arquebusiers supporting one of their pike blocks. Um, mm. They did a, no end of uh, damage to the um, French uh, gendarmes killed loads of them every time the French drew up for an attack. At one point, the French actually rode right the way through the Spanish pike square and out the other side. Yeah. And then all the Spaniards got up and reformed and they were back oh. to 
that we're back to the beginning again. <laughs> um, so um, there was that. Um, but I think one of the things that, that is different to part of the year is that the artillery was, I think, more devastating and more mobile. So mm. I'm thinking that the guns had a higher rate of fire, were more accurate, and it was able to sides both sides were able to reposition some guns during the battle. So that I think the gun, the battle was to an extent dictated by the artillery. I'm not saying the artillery killed loads of people, but I think the artillery forced the Imperials to attack when they probably would have preferred to stay where they were. Yeah, because repositioning of artillery is, is a relatively new concept at that time, is it? Certainly with anything yeah, more than a, than a tiny little push-around gun. Yeah, but they um, clearly some of these guns that were moved were, were larger guns. Um, yeah. That, you know, they talk about both, I think, Italian and French guns were captured by, by the other sides. There was some mm. fighting around a farmhouse called the Masonette that was um, quite, that, that was the most important place on the battlefield, which I think I've, I think I've managed to identify. Mm. Um, I hope I've managed to identify anyhow. I'm pretty confident. <laughs> excellent excellent you'll have to read the you'll have to read the book you'll have to read the book which um i found out was published uh yesterday or today um i haven't got my copy of it yet um obviously i know what's in it uh it's on the um, hellion site um most of it is written by about two-thirds of it or three-quarters of it about two-thirds of it was written by massimo um but i um did a lot of work on the sections actually relating Mm. to the battle um, is there is there a wargaming section in there, or is it orders of battle and maps that would be most interesting to us, um, as well as obviously sort of, the bits you've written? Um, it's <laughs> basically the um, the um, orders of battle, the deployments, the maps, the terrain, and how I see the the sequence of the battle going, which is 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 somewhat different to um, other people that have written about it. Um, as is my location is. My location is somewhat uh, somewhat different. Um, next, as well. next, next to Lidl's and the <laughs> Italian Italian dental supply warehouse. <laughs> no, it's um, um, the um, it's the this is an this is called Il Fornace, this industrial estate. I imagine there's a big furnace of some kind there. I don't know what they make there, but it looks very, it looks very industrial. And uh, certainly, by my account, there would have been would have been fighting sort of around that area. Um, around the area where it is and um, luckily um, most of the battlefield you can still the battlefield is is still there um, I hope next year to get a chance to go there it was difficult you know the mm. last year could partly because of Covid and partly because I had yeah. time pressures to get the book finished but um, I do hope I'll be able to go there um, next year and, um, and actually walk it um, or cycle it because it's, it's, it's a fair a it'll be enough to want to have a bike or something like that excellent well i should definitely be getting a copy of that to add to my uh three other books from from the the range so i should be i'll be looking to get that signed at some stage oh of course (laughs) of course of course yeah um, yes. I, I I had somebody come up to me at the uh, I did a big Italian Wars game at Fiasco in Leeds. Uh, a couple oh of weeks yeah, ago. yeah, yeah. Uh, I had somebody want to take a selfie with me, which is the first one that I've had. Ooh, which was, uh, ooh, yeah. fantastic! So, obviously, we are fantastic. moving up oh, up, up the celebrity ranks from uh, Cat Z to Cat Y. We're on our way up to. Uh, <laughs> So I'm a celebrity. Get me out of here! I'm, I'm obviously moving on. I'm moving 
<laughs> no, it's great. I'm, I mean, I never thought I'd be writing a book book. And um, indeed, I, I generally, I, I, would, I wouldn't think, I'm generally very busy and I wouldn't have time to do it. With this particular one, because I'd done all the research mm. um, for my own rules, it was very easy to just go and write the book. And uh, I think I've managed to make a real, real sense of it um, in a way that, you know, I'm walking in some fairly illustrious footprints of people yeah. that have, um, have, 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 have been there before. Um, I've got a slightly different take on it, which I think could be quite, quite interesting. And I'm going to be doing a talk on it at... Um, um, some Hellion conference um, next year, yeah. which would be, oh, well, that would be a bit scary because they probably are historians that are going to be there. And I'm a, I'm a wargamer. <laughs> yeah. A wargamer with a little bit of historian uh, um, in me. Um, I have to put, I have uh, put a big game on of it in the conference for people to see. That would be good. The terrible irony is I don't have any suitable figures. Um, it's kind of, yeah, I know, <laughs> go figure. Go figure. I actually don't have any suitable figures. Um, I have got an army. I've made an army of wooden blocks up um, yeah. for, for playtesting with the Renaissance rules, but um, I haven't actually played played the first game with it uh, yet, but hopefully I will fairly soon. Um, no, fingers crossed, mate. Fingers yeah, so crossed. that's been a, that's been an exciting, an exciting and interesting thing to do. I probably would have published Renaissance if I hadn't got distracted by writing the book. But yeah, I think well, it, hopefully people will find it's a good distraction. And uh, yeah. the book would be much better for having, until I until I really researched the battle, I really didn't have any idea how, about the interplay and the tactics at the time. And I feel now I've got a pretty good idea. Excellent, excellent. Well, we'll uh, we'll just finish off then with um, a little chat about um, what your plans are. Uh, we've talked about, about the rules yes. and uh, you being distracted and anything. Have you got uh, a... <laughs> have, have Always, have you got always, always. have you got a display game planned for next year? Yes. So the big um, modelling projects I'm working on at the moment is mm. the 1672 stuff in the background where I'm getting figures assembled and I've got painters painting regiments for me, but I don't intend to base many of those until um, after Salute. So the big one is um, Salute. It's the big anniversary year at Salute. I'm taking a game that I played before at the War Games Holiday Centre um, five years back called um, Ipsus, which is a, mm. a classical a classical phalanx versus phalanx um, successor mm. battle. Oh, I with, love, um, love a bit of successor battle. Yeah, so it's a huge battle, um, size chariots, uh, dozens of elephants. Essentially, it's got two, uh, I'm planning two phalanxes that are both about uh, 10 feet long. And I'm trying to, the project I'm working on is to try and get my phalanxes from four ranks deep to six ranks deep, mm. just for that little bit of extra vavavoom. I can say it yeah. will make no difference whatsoever to the game's play. Um, well, visually, they will visually. Look, visually. Yeah. Visually, for those that appreciate, I, I, I always get a bit bitter at these shows. They, so many shows, it's all about the terrain. My yeah. terrain is going to be boring as whatever. Um, yeah. But the but the army should be uh, the army should be it was fought on a plane basically. Yeah. As much as I try and inject, I would love to be able to inject a waterway, some ships, a major yeah. city, a temple. But there wasn't any of that. <laughs> <laughs> and my my uh, my needing to stick to realism prevents me from adding all these extra features. So all you get really is a huge massive battle with thousands of figures. And at the moment, I'm trying to work out how on earth I'm going to get them all finished in time scratching through my list of friends thinking 
who I can uh, tap up for some figures. <laughs> finish a unit or do some basing. You, you know, you guys, you're all out there. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be getting a call at some point when I start panicking. I'll probably reach the urine drinking stage around about February, I would imagine, when I yeah. desperately need to desperately need additional <laughs> help. So, but I mean well, it should be it should yeah. be really good. It'll be a great game. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for coming back on, Simon. It's been great to talk to you. Always a pleasure. And, Always and, a pleasure. and to have the exclusive interview with the author of uh, the new Hellion well, book. The co-author. The co-author. The co-author. Um, because, as I say, Mass wrote Mass, Mass wrote the majority of the book. Um, I'm just guilty for the probably controversial... <laughs> <laughs> controversial location of the battle there's, uh, there's, abso and, there's and, absolutely nothing wrong with that and i will i will now look forward to that book with a different light because uh, i wasn't aware i was aware of the book but i wasn't aware of your involvement in it so uh, i'm looking forward to yeah i haven't to shouted very much about it um yeah. i haven't shouted very much about it but i have been working hard on it i've done a lot of, lot of work on it and it, it, it is it's been very exciting so thank you so much for inviting me on here again always a great pleasure to come and have a chat no worries simon i shall look forward to chatting with you at a show somewhere in the future somewhere soon yeah that'd be great Lovely to talk to Simon again, such a smashing guy. And we finally got to hear the story of his wavy bases, uh, which we uh, didn't quite get to fit in at the end of uh, his full episode. Uh, so that was great to hear. And uh, we have to make sure that we keep badgering him so he eventually gets these Renaissance rules done and finished. My next guest is uh, going way back in the mists of time, and it's Richard Harris, my friend, uh, who runs uh, a company called Legendary War Games with uh, a colleague and a friend of mine, Andy Lawson. And uh, he was episode two. He was the second, well, third person, because I had two guests on the first episode. Uh, so he was one of my uh, guests from the original five episodes, uh, which were which could have been it. It could have been it. If uh, you lot weren't listening, I would have knocked it on the head after five. Uh, so it's your fault. We're up to 33 is what I'm kind of saying. <laughs> so uh, Richard, uh, he's, he's uh, bless him. He's, he's uh, not had a brilliant year, um, but uh, we get to chat up uh, with him, uh, talk with him about his uh, wargaming and uh, what's going on at Legendary Wargames. So, if you've stretched your legs and uh, washed your paintbrush, it's time for another half hour of chat with Richard Harris. Well, hello and welcome to little mini interviews for this episode. And uh, we're going all the way back to episode two for this one. And uh, that was on March 2021 when we spoke to my old friend Richard Harris from Legendary War Games. Uh, so let's uh, welcome him back to the show. Hello, Richard. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Nice to be back. Excellent. Good to see you again, mate. Yeah. Um, I last bumped into you at uh, Partizan when you were you were putting on an American Civil War game. Um, yes. You, have you been to a few shows this year? Well, actually, that's probably the only show I've been to. Uh, we, well, we we, we did uh, t two Partizan shows. Um, yeah. Yeah, we only put a game on at, at this one. Just I've just had a rough year with uh, 
my mum died and my mother-in-law and father-in-law have died this year as well so have been tied up doing other things so yeah it's been a, it's been a tough year for you mate so I, I i understand that i understand that yeah. um but you put on a great display at uh, partisan with a bit of american civil war was it yeah. a specific battle that you did yeah it was um uh, just a small action uh ringwald ringgold gap basically uh was the uh army under hooker chasing a confederate force and um, they had the confederates throughout a rear guard and held a wooded ridge and they had to hold it long enough for the confederate baggage to uh, get away a lot of it got away on a train or trains so they held them up for half a day and then they got the order to uh, withdraw so yeah, it was um, it was a good looking game. There's lots of uh, lots of trees involved. Have you have you bought some more trees? Because yeah. uh, another game we're going to talk about later on. You, there's a lot yeah. of trees involved. Yeah. Well, um, we we've got trees from our collection, and then um, it's a we always try to do a joint game when we're at Fiasco. So it's Bramley Barn Wargamers mm. and Legendary Wargames. So uh, we get to use Chris Flowers' collection as well. So he has a lot of trees as well. So we've put them together. Yeah, Chris was the uh, the last guest on the podcast. And, yes, uh, I, uh, I got yeah. to sit down and have a cup of tea with him in his room with his yes. uh, with his lovely collection of figures. <laughs> yes, I listened to it. Ah, <laughs> oh, good, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope you would. You got a mention, I think. He was very uh, he kind did- about you. Yeah, yes, he uh, gave me a mention a couple of times. Yeah, he, uh, just reminiscing back um, about the uh, 175th Waterloo, Peter Gilder's last game really there. So, yeah, <laughs> where Peter um, pulled a fast one with the rules on me. <laughs> Took me a bit bad. Oh, yes. <laughs> I suppose you couldn't really complain at the time, could you? No, no, no. It, it was it was quite I was a bit exasperated shall we say and uh, there were a few people looking at me going no 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 don't 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 push it don't push it <laughs> so I, I had to <laughs> relent and uh, let him get let him uh, fire basically he fired at me out of sequence at the end of a turn all right I just chopped down one of his battalions with the Scots Greys and rallied immediately in front of another battalion so I thought oh Great, I can charge another battalion. He says, "Oh no, I can fire it." You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I, I was, I was gonna say, I was gonna say, I, I bet he was playing French. Yes, he was playing French. Yes. Yeah, because the, the, these every, every story I get is that he's when he does, he did do a bit of a dodgy rule. It was always in favour of the French. Um, yeah, but he's he uh, he he's at his rules for the British. I think it. Uh, when you're fighting in the peninsula, he did quite like the British as well. So the the British were a good army. So he he liked winning, is what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah, that would be the best <laughs> way to say it. <laughs> well, we all like winning. Excellent. Don't we? So. <laughs> we do, we do, we do, mate, yeah. we do. And um, have you got anything planned for shows next year? Are you going to take a game out then? Um, yeah, I think uh, first parties on. As I say, we do the Bramley Barn, yeah. Chris and uh, Steve Shan uh, looking to put mm. on a, one of his scenarios from his 
new booklet he's got coming out on uh, Leipzig. So the plan is we're going to do something there. Uh, then Chris wants to fight Leipzig uh, for our group. Obviously, our table's big enough, and then we'll put it on as a game for Ledger Review War Games as well. Excellent, because it's the... Um, what anniversary is it going to be next year? Well, it's... Uh, what are we on? We're on... Uh, yeah, I don't want to embarrass ooh, myself and get it wrong. That's why I'm asking so, you. Yeah, what will it be? It'll be 100 and... About 190... Would be 190 years, something like that. Yeah, um, yeah, something like that. Something uh, like that. So, yeah. It, oh no, it'd be more than that. Yeah, won't we're, it, we're just, we're, yeah, we're just proving we're not very good at maths here, aren't no, we? No, no. Well, um, two hundred. It'll be two hundred. It'll be two hundred and ten. Two hundred and ten. Two hundred and ten. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. two two ten. Yeah. Yeah, two hundred. It doesn't normally take us that long, listeners. We we you know I I am a. <laughs> A graduate engineer. I, I normally have a calculator these days. Um, well, that that uh, that sounds like it's going to be quite a, a spectacular do then. Yes, yes. Uh, we're uh, you know we're we're looking at um, which we've been doing for a while. Um, while we've been playing the games this year, we realise that there's not as many grandman grand manor players out there that there once was. Uh, we do have yeah. um, a small group of visitors, you know, different people who come, who still mm. do play Grand Manor, just as we do. So we're looking at changing the rules a little bit, not a lot, but but just making them a bit more playable, a bit easier to play. Okay, yeah, that'll be interesting to see what you come up with there. Yeah, yeah. It's, we, we, there are people who have a lot of house rules for their games, so we'll see what uh, we come up with. Have you considered um, doing like different rule periods for different weekends? Have you, you know, maybe yeah, doing yeah. a general dame or a black powder weekend or something like that? Yeah, well, we, we're we're very open to uh, groups to come, and if they want to play their own rules, we're open to requests quite freely. We advertise our weekends with Grand Manor because not knowing those rules well, we feel as a we would struggle to get the balance right. But if anybody wanted to yeah. come and do a game, uh, we're quite happy for to put the tables and the, provide tables, figures and whatever. So Excellent, excellent. Yeah. And um, you've had a few games on this year. Uh, just looking down at the list here, yeah, Borodino, that's uh, another big Napoleonic one, I think. Did you go yeah. through that a couple of times? Um, well, it was something we did a couple of years ago and then a group, yeah. group, Decided they wanted to play Borodino. It was one of the favourite games. So yeah, that was a quite mm. a ding dong game. Was that yeah? The uh, the Russians uh, made a very aggressive defence, which was All quite right. di- quite different to how most other people fight the battle. So um, they managed to hang on to Borodino for the whole weekend. Wow. Which is, yeah, wow. yeah. Well, the French made a a couple of different tactical decisions, and they decided not to assault the Grand Redoubt which meant that the artillery from there could fire over the river and into the poles as they attacked Borodino, mm. uh, which caused them no end of problems. Yeah, it's, it sounds like nobody had um, read about what happened at the battle. <laughs> yes, yeah, well, I think they said they knew the rules, so they just thought rather than assault the uh, the Grand Redoubt, they'd, they'd put the forces elsewhere and uh, 
it just hindered them a little bit as they as they did that. So, but yeah. interesting. So they they really enjoyed the weekend. So uh, it it worked well. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. It's uh, it's it's one of those classic Napoleonic battles, isn't it, Borodino? And um, yes. quite often the the Russian players are quite passive um, and yeah. just sit there and wait for the French. So it's uh, it's interesting to see. Uh, you know, a more aggressive tactics from the Russians. Yes. That's a that's a, that's a new one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, it is for me. Yeah, I've never never seen them take such an aggressive uh, stance. So it was uh, it was good. Yeah, it, it worked well as a game. Yeah, it's nice to see, isn't it, from a historical perspective, how things could have gone differently with different tactics yes. and, and different priorities in a, in a game. And that, that's what yes. war, war game is all about. After yeah, time, that's right. It? Yes, of course it yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's something which um, I think Grand Manor does give a game. I know that people tend to criticise Grand Manor on the uh, command and control, but they they were designed by Peter for quite big multiplayer games, and having five or six commanders aside gives you that command indecision because you've got players doing their own thing, even though you've a C&C who might give them orders. They do the exact opposite or don't do or they don't combine attacks together. So you get that from those rules. You're effectively, you're having um, real command and control problems with real people. That's right. Rather than trying to build it into the rules with, you know, orders or chits or whatever your rule set particularly does. That's right, yeah. Yeah, it's good good to see. Um, And then we... we, uh, had a bit of Talavera as well. Talavera. How, did, how did that go? I've, I've never known the French do anything in Tal- Talavera. <laughs> well, interestingly, um, the French actually got a win, but it was because wow. the British decided that the British commander decided that uh, he was there for the weekend and therefore he wasn't going to sit on a hill. He was going to go down and attack the French, which uh, <laughs> which. Which kind of went well in its early stages, but then he suddenly found out, oh, I'm actually outnumbered here, and and things by the end of it were going badly. <laughs> yeah, that that um, that lad Wellington, he 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 had a good idea or two. So yeah. if it worked for him, <laughs> I, I'd you know I'd be I'd be reluctant to try yes. something different. Yes. To be honest, oh, brilliant! Well, well, that was a lesson a lesson learned out yes. for him. Oh, absolutely. Um, and then you, you, you've uh, done a bit of Arnhem as well. Um, very, very popular um, part of World War Two. Um, yes. I, one of my other guests on this um, particular show, Nick Skinner, I've talked quite yeah. a lot with him uh, about Arnhem on this episode. Yeah. Um, so, which, which um, sort of bit of the battle were you were portraying? Uh, well, we had um, because we've got flexibility in the tables. We had a three fifty. Uh, no, sorry, two fourteen by six tables and a 15 by yeah. six table uh on the 15 by six there was arnhem and Oosterbeck, and yeah. they were they were fighting their game at their pace so it was three individual yeah. games so it was quite a clever mm. oh, scenario well, that's a good idea. Um, mm. and then we had the uh, 30 core going really from job bridge to up the road to nijmegen and those those two there were two games uh, doing that, and uh, they both played separately. And then there was a table at the end where you could work yeah. out 
this game was done by Andy, who's uh, the other partner in Legendary War Games. Yeah. And he could work out by what period they'd got to and how far they'd got to how far they'd got in Arnhem to how far they'd got in the other table, and come up with yeah. a uh, come up with a result. So how did uh, how did thirty core do? Did they uh, did they get there? No, they they fell short, and the Paras, although they did very badly in Arnhem, they were pushed. Uh, they, they they couldn't manage to uh, secure the bridge. So. And and actually they they uh, they stalled on the roads did thirty car so so fairly close to um, real life then yeah yeah pretty pretty historical actually yeah yeah, it, yeah. It was, sometimes it was it's good to see that and you know you yeah. kind of know your rules are working and your scenarios are right if you if you're not far off historical yes that's right yeah so we're we're using rapid we're playing rapid fire. Uh, the guys who uh, they've been coming with us for a while, and uh, they really liked it. Yeah, it's the first time they have played rapid fire, or some of them have played rapid fire, and they they all yeah. got on with it and uh, really enjoyed it. And um, rapid fire, then, there's just a new version released, isn't there, or been recently released? Yes, yes. Uh, are you still working on the classic rules, or have you switched to the newer ones? Uh, no, we're still with the uh, the classic ones. We have tried. The new rules, and uh, although there's, yeah. there's there's a few very interesting points in there, so we may well be taking some of those bits and putting them in with the classic rules. But we didn't think oh, it offered okay. enough difference for us to change over. You know, we're all comfortable with the rules we play. So, yeah, I, I, do do you think it's um trying to get the rules into a a newer generation. I've not. I have to say, I haven't looked at the what they, what they've done with it. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a more modern thing where you're doing away with tables and going to using a lot lots of dice. So right, instead okay. of having an art, well, how the artillery worked. Instead of having points values for the guns and then looking at how many hits you get and then totaling the points up and rolling yeah. dice you get a number of dice to roll for each hit you get so you end up rolling loads of dice okay yeah i can i can see how that would be more with the modern way of thinking yes. if you like yeah yeah i can see that as well that if you've played classic rapid fire for 20 years or more yeah yeah then that's right it's yeah it's not worth changing we i'm very much the same if i if i've got a set of rules i like i'll stick with them Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, if we, we all, you, I think you're always searching for something that might be better, and yeah. if you don't find something that is comfortable, you stick with the rules that you do. You know, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. So whatever people play that they're comfortable with is is fine. Excellent, excellent. Yeah. So, um, have you started to think about? Games for next year, a schedule for what you're going to put on? Obviously, we've talked about Leipzig, but anything else? We've got a weekend um, at the beginning, probably in March. We normally start again in March because the weather's uh, where we are up yeah. here. Um, we, we're a bit prone to uh, bad weather. So we'll, uh, we'll, we're going to start with a group who want to come and do uh, a Sudan campaign. Oh, well, oh a Sudan, brilliant. A big Sudan game. Uh, and I've been, do you know um, Dave Dock, Dave Doherty? I do, I know Mr yeah. Doherty, yeah. Yes, yeah. Man of a Thousand Camels. Absolutely. We're, um, 
we've been in touch and uh, we want we've always wanted we've spoken a few times about getting a sort of big grand game on uh, using his figures and our figures so uh, mm. we think we're going to do that in March so he's going to come down and bring his collection and we've got probably a, a similar sort of setup to the Arnhem game with uh, the first day spent going down two 15 foot tables and then the final they'll be the two columns and then mm. they will then arrive to relief cartoon or not and is this going to be using the yeah or not uh, yeah, yeah. Is, is this going to be using the uh, the sands of sudan rules yes yeah sands of sudan yeah brilliant we had um, we had carlo on um two or three episodes ago you know carlo yes. pagano the guy who put oh, them together do, yeah. Yeah. um I, Looks great, looks great, and I think it's uh, a suitable. The way those rules work are suitable yes. for a number of periods. We yes. talked about Vietnam on the podcast as as a potential. Uh, oh, I think Dave yeah. Doherty was looking at that as well. Yeah, I I uh, I've, I started, uh, although it's a number of years ago. I started collecting some twenty mil Vietnam, and I was looking for mm. a system that uh, would work for the us up here at Legendary Wargames, so you could fight on multiple tables, but with a yeah. a more a bigger scale, not so much skirmish as as you bigger units. But I just thought it would work really well to have between six, yeah, you know, up to six tables, and you could have uh, a firebase on one, an airbase on another, a, a, a town on another. A valley on another with a village, uh, some white water, some brown water, so to say, on another, and tie them all into a a, a mini campaign that you could do over a weekend. Yeah, I, I, that would be superb if you can get that off the ground. That'll be superb, oh, mate. It really will. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's just on hold at the minute. Uh, uh, when we moved up here, and then I've been tied up getting my cabin sorted and doing all that, and then life getting in the way, so. I'll uh, crack on with yeah. that once we get Graham's good adult sorted. Excellent, excellent. Well, um, I saw a few photographs um, that you put on Facebook um, last couple of days um, from the weekend, and yes. you were you were proper big ACWing over the weekend. Yes. Um, so right. tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Well, we thought um, it was the Battle of the Wilderness, but we only had um, five players in the end. So I just mm. did the Orange Courthouse Road. Uh, so that's Early's Core going down, trying to get to the junction of the Wilderness Tavern. And again, that went reasonably historical uh, in that yeah. Sedgwick um, had bivouacked on the far side of this by the tavern and got they both got to Saunders Field about the, the same time. And then uh, the fight, ensued around Saunders Field. And the uh, Confederates tried a big uh, flanking attack, but just ran into other Union brigades. And so it all started to stall. So it went it went quite well. We learned quite a lot about the rules and uh, a few changes that we can make, uh, which is all going well to uh, finishing them off and getting them sorted. So, um, have you any idea how long they're going to be before they're out in the world? These uh, grand skedaddle rules. I would hope. I would hope we could get them sorted for summer. Oh, so, brilliant! Uh, so that 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 should be that should be possible now. 
probably just got as probably just got to work on field defences and just making sure we've got the balance right for attacking and defending field defences. That's the only thing really that I'm not entirely sure about at the minute. So we we we've played a couple of games like that, but I'm not entirely happy with the balance we've got yet. So we'll play we'll play test that a couple of times and make sure that works. Were these the the rules that were used at the holiday centre, or is this something new? The Peter Gilder's old old rules that he um, so they they he based his rules in Grand Manor or on Grand Manor. Yeah. We've made a few changes. I don't know whether people will remember. Uh, well, Chris Flowers was talking about his Gettysburg game that he did at Sheffield Triples, and yes. Steve Shan had uh, got hold of Peter's rules and uh, added a close combat system to it, just to try and make it a bit more civil war. So that's what we're using, and we've made a few other changes as well, and we seem to get a decent feel for the civil war. Seems to work quite well. And has it got that grand manner feel to them? If you, you know, if you're a regular grand manner, would you play a? Would you kind of feel at home with it? Uh, I think so. Yes, I think uh, it's very different, obviously, because you've got you've got both sides fighting in lines, and the firepower is much more than uh, mm. the Napoleonic period. Um, so your tactics have to be have to be different. Can take a bit of getting used to, and you can still form attacks, which they would have done, whatever they did do, uh, by having something like what we call column of lines. So a brigade would attack rather than just one one behind the other. And that gives them a better chance as the casualties are spread amongst the brigade, which gives them a a chance of getting in. And is the command and control, is that is that again? Is that like we spoke about earlier on? Yeah, more to do with the number of players. Yes, fixed within the rules. Yes, yeah. Uh, we tend to find that we have uh, more command bases on than you would if you were fighting Grand Manor. So we have brigade commanders, right. divisional commanders, because in these rules you can attach officers to regiments when they're going into a close combat and they get their command value added to the uh, the close combat which was a there were so many officers shot during the civil war um, it reflects that willingness for them to lead their troops into battle yeah it was a dangerous occupation wasn't it being yes. an officer in the, uh, in it the civil war it certainly was yes and of course, there were many uh, friendly fire uh, incidents as well. Jackson, I think, and Longstreet were both uh, shot by their own troops. But uh, we, it we, doesn't bode well, does it? No, we don't. We don't have that in the rules. We don't. We don't do friendly no. fire. But <laughs> yes, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and have you got anything yourself personally, project-wise, that you're going to? look at that's different or you just build or I'm not just just building but are you going to be building on uh, your existing projects yeah, for the it's, coming year? It's, it's building on existing projects so we're building a Napoleonic um, collection alongside Chris's uh, just tra- yeah. just little bits that we need to build up. I'd love to do Vagram uh, next year sometime yeah. and we so we need to build up an Austrian core and possibly even a light division as well. 
but we'll see see how we go and uh, we're well on with that and then the the civil war will need more figures as well to what we've got so we'll be building that you always well. need more figures mate you always oh, need more figures absolutely yeah that's that's a well that's the war gamers curse isn't it <laughs> it is it is mate it always yeah. is yeah um well it's been lovely sort of catching up with you today lovely. richard yeah. and um hearing about your plans for next year and uh, where things are going um just remind everyone if uh, they fancy a big game weekend um how do they get hold of legendary war games and how do they do the booking etc uh yeah well um you can contact us through um, Facebook if you want to message through Facebook. Uh, and then there's a website and we post the events on an events page. You can book or ask a question through, contact us through that as well. Through that, my uh, uh, We have a phone number on the Facebook page. So if you wanted to ring with a query, that's absolutely fine or messages. Are you gonna are you gonna be putting a, are you gonna be putting a game on at uh, recon in a few weeks time? No, I uh, we we've nothing planned for recon, but I may well uh, I'll have to see. I might come. I might uh, see if I can get down and uh, take part in your uh, Italian Wars game. Yeah, I was talking. Ah, very to, good, very good. Ah, uh, well, I heard good things about it from uh, Richard uh, Croisdale. Yes, he he yeah, Richard. Uh, Richard turned himself into Cesare Borgia for the day. That's right. Um, yeah. yeah, without he, he he didn't do all the drinking and uh, rowdy fighting and running off with women. He just did the fighting. So uh, yeah. he was most welcome, most welcome. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna see if I can get well, down for that. So that'd be good. Brilliant. Well, it'd be lovely yeah. to see you there, mate. And, yeah. Uh, thanks yeah. for coming on the show again. Much appreciated. It's, it's a pleasure. And, Thank you for uh, inviting. No worries, and uh, hopefully uh, some of our listeners will get to uh, meet up with you uh, over at uh, Legendary War Games uh, this year. Yeah, that, and next that, year. Yeah, that would that that certainly would be lovely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're uh, you know we're, we're flexible to what people want to do, and uh, we'll listen to any uh, any uh, concepts put towards us. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's that's fantastic, mate. Uh thanks very much, Richard. Good night. Yeah, cheers, Ken. Thanks very much. Great catch up with Richard there. Looking forward to uh an increased uh, schedule at uh, Legendary War Games next year and the release of the Grand Skidaddle ACW rules, uh, which will be uh, a great thing for those who uh, are used to playing things in the grand manner. Now, I hope you all had a decent laugh there at our absolutely appalling ability to take away 1813 from 2023 and I apologise now to Mr Poynton my former maths teacher um I'm sorry, I really should have got that much, much quicker. But there we go, old age creeping in and uh, me using calculators all the time and not doing stuff in my head like I used to when I was younger. So that just leads on to our final guest and a very special guest it is too. I always enjoy talking to uh, my next guest, uh, Mr Nick Skinner from Two Fat Lardies. Uh, Nick embodies what I enjoy in gaming in in uh, 
terms of his approach to the hobby. He, he enjoys it. He sees the social side of it. He loves into you know mixing with uh, with people and chatting about the hobby and uh, promoting other people's stuff as well you know it's great for retweeting stuff uh, that other people do just need to get him into a bit bigger gaming and uh, he'll be t- absolutely fine uh, <laughs> but uh, he's a lovely guy and he's done some great stuff recently in the hobby uh, in Arnhem and uh, Battlefield Challenge all sorts of stuff and we're going to talk about all of that now with Nick Skinner. So, sit down for the last time and uh, get yourself another brew. You probably need one. Uh, we're going to be uh, 50 minutes more, uh, but it's going to fly by. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Nick Skinner. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we are back uh, with another one of our short interviews and uh, today oh, this one is going to be with Nick Skinner and we spoke to Nick back in episode 7 uh, May 28th 2021 so 15 months ago and uh, the first question I've got for you Nick is are you still whistling the theme tune? <laughs> yes I am, Ilkley Moor Bartat is a classic Ken. It is, absolute classic, absolute classic. Um, and before we start talking wargaming, mate, we, we've got to talk Cricket World Cup, haven't we? What a great result. You know, it's Unbelievable. As, as we record it, it's less than 24 hours ago since England got their hands on that trophy. Uh, what an interesting game it was to watch too. Yeah, good stuff. I was going to say, did you did you get up and um, early doors and watch it? I saw most of it. It was also Remembrance Sunday, so yeah, yeah. when the uh, when when I was at the village, when I was up the village for the for the uh, for the service, my phone in my pocket was buzzing with updates. Uh, <laughs> and the, the funny thing about the, our village was that they had a change of um, operation this time. They had a change of committee that was running the Remembrance Service, so somebody new took it on. And consequently, we were running 15 minutes ahead of schedule. So we, by the time everybody else was starting their two-minute silence, we we had the last post, laid the wreaths, and were ready to go home. It was quite quite comic, really. I was a, I was a bit worried when Pakistan started to bowl because um, mm. that looked very good, and we looked a bit shaky. Yeah, they've got some good bowlers in their lineup. Is is that that uh, Shaheen Shah Afridi is a pretty good player, isn't he? He got rid of Hales yeah. easy enough. Yeah, it was um, good tactics of us to uh, smash his ankle with a ball and then get him to fall over catching <laughs> someone. I think that's brilliant, Captain. See that is uh, you, you don't see that. What we got? What, who are the Yorkshiremen in the England team at the moment? They got Adil is Yorkshire, isn't he? Yeah. Who else? Most most of our lads are um, proper red ball cricket. Yeah. Um, we're not. You know, I've, I've never I've never been a big fan of white ball cricket. It's, too quick. I'll take it in all its forms. I'm not fast. I just yeah, like to watch yeah. it. It reminds me, of so. years and years ago, I had a friend who enjoyed cricket. Uh, and, of course, before we went into T20, and he said to me, you know what, Nick? He says, I don't understand why somebody doesn't do a format of the game where all you do is try to smash every single ball out of the park. He was, little did he know it then, but he was 30 years ahead of his time. Well, I, I, was, bro- I was brought up with the opening partnership of Jeff Boycott and Dennis Amos for England. And them lads could send a stadium to sleep. <laughs> 30 for none at lunch. Perfect day. Perfect day. 
Anyway, we need to get off the cricket and yeah. talk a bit of wargaming. <laughs> um, you are a busy man. Tell me about you? it. Because every time I look at something, you are going abroad, you're doing battlefield challenges, you're doing lardy days. Yeah. I, I don't know how you get time to be at home or, or to do a job. <laughs> well, we don't really. I mean, it's been larger days have been uh, the kind of post-COVID story, I guess. You know, the number of larger days there are now, uh, Richard was saying the other day, I think he went to, uh, he spent 23 out of 25 weekends doing various stuff. I mean, I did, I kind of did eight on the trot and it's a long, you know, they're, they're, they're intense, aren't they? A whole day of gaming takes preparation. You go there. Plus, of course, you probably stay over and have a beer and a curry. So it's a pretty intense activity doesn't go down too well with the with the wife sometimes. Um, and the Halardi days have been great. And, yeah, Battlefield Challenge. Well, I, do you want me to talk to you about that quickly? Because that was good fun. That was really good. I was going to come on to that in a minute. Um, because the Lardy days, um, I, I was wondering, are we going to reach capacity at some point? Uh, are, are they 53 in a year and you can't do them all? <laughs> I don't know what the limit is to them, really. I know there's a limit to how many that, you know, Richard can go to or I can go to. Um, but we've got them. Next year, there's going to be one in Norway. There's going to be one up in Trondheim wow. in the new year. If you fancy a trip, put your... I think yeah. even a Yorkshireman might need his fluffy slippers on if he goes to <laughs> Norway in February. Um, uh, yeah, and I think actually the Northwest, I don't think there's many lardy activities in the Northwest. I don't know why that is. So if you're in the Northwest and you're listening... Because I think you know across the other side of the Pennines, there um, they could probably do a bit more of, with a bit of a few more lardy days up there. My mother-in-law's in Liverpool, so don't don't have any up there because that would be a bit too close. Yeah, you'd have to go and stay over then, aren't you? Mm. Not mm, if we can keep it, not not if we can good, keep it quiet. Good. Well, it's fantastic to see, um, and the ones I've been involved with have been fantastic. I'm at Steel Lard again this year, uh, mm. and it's great to see such a fantastic community and so many people who were just happy and enjoying the gaming yeah we just came back from last weekend we were in antwerp uh because Mm. crisis as you know didn't happen so crisis uh became a a lardy day they called it lard warp which was very original um and we went to the tin soldiers of antwerp used their i don't know if you've been to their headquarters uh on the outside of antwerp um it's an amazing building because it looks like it's been built out of old chipboard. But once you sort of peel back the chipboard and go inside, uh, there must be about 20 or 30 gaming tables in there. Uh, and they were all full of games, including a fantastic 54 millimeter um, diorama, I guess you call it, of Arnhem Bridge using king and country figures. Oh, I mean, it must have been a million pounds worth of figures on the table. No, I'm not kidding you. It was outrageous. They're not cheap, are they? No, they weren't. No, they weren't, not at all. Uh, and uh, it was, this This guy had it as his collection. And it looked fantastic. It really was great eye candy. And, Ken, it was a big game. The table he had that on uh, must have been 25 feet long, I guess. Well, David Marshall does a lot of stuff for King and Country, you know, the terrain maker, and the stuff he does is amazing. And uh, Stephen Walder, guy from Australia, who I've interviewed on the podcast in the past, he works in a shop that sells King and Country. And, uh, yeah, he was telling me the prices. (laughs) So I'm going to put you on the spot here, Nick. Go on. What is the best Lard Day name? Oh, God. Yeah, you are putting me on the spot. 
I think lard, lard work is pretty good. Um, yeah. Uh, we've had some outrageous ones. Come and have a go if you think you're lard enough was the one that Mark Backhouse ran in Southampton, which is absurd, isn't it? Yeah, I, awesome. I like Operation Market Larden. That's uh, pretty yeah. simple. It does what it says on the tin. Um, oozing lard in Bedford. That's a, that's a that's funny good. one. Um, yeah. yeah. So I think the crazy names knows no bounds, really. There's probably something even more wacky going to come along in a minute. Yeah, exactly. I wasn't going to suggest one, to be, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, but, but what I got, was going to suggest was that we have uh, Warhammer World uh, with the ginormous space marine APC outside. Right. And I'm thinking of Lard World. <laughs> what would you have outside? What, what, yeah, what would you have? A large you have like a pint, a pint. statue of, um, or like a diorama of a, a car with you and Rich going across to uh, <laughs> and uh, Sydney in the back on the way to the continent. Yeah, we could have a 200 metre statue of Sydney, whatever metres are in feet. I could. <laughs> No, yeah, French French money as I call it. I don't know. I don't know how it works. Uh, I could just imagine a load of disappointed um, butchers turning up, though, um, thinking it was actually Lard World. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a pencil museum, isn't there? So there is. I'm sure there's a Lard there Museum somewhere. <laughs> You've uh, got the Lard magazine coming up. Uh, have you yep. got stuff coming in for that? So, yeah, funny enough, I've just got it up on my other screen here because I uh, had another article come in today from Des Darkin. So Des has oh, written something for us, uh, yeah, um, around Pickett's Charge. So that's going to be nice. I think Longstreet's Attack is going to be uh, one that he's put mm. for. But we've got – let's have a look. I've got something titled at the moment. It's called Something from Dave Brown. So I don't know what that will be, but it will be that something. Yeah, yeah, we've got um, – the Merville battery scenario is going to go in there. We've got some Dutch Britanniarum. We've got Joe Bilton's doing a terrain build. Um, we've got some stuff for Bag the Hun in there about torpedo bombing in the Mediterranean. So that should be good oh, fun. Nice. Uh, we've got some Mud and Blood, First World War stuff from Storm of Steel is going to go in. Um, and something also for Algae, which is the First World War set of mm. air combat rules uh, from Alex as well, which will probably go in. Some Maximilian Adventure for Sharp Practice. Um, some more chain of command in there, a bit of sharp practice down in Mexico. Um, but the stuff's still coming in. And we'll start to put that together from now until early December. And then it should be out early December, hopefully first week if we're lucky. Yeah, it normally comes out just in time for Christmas, doesn't it? Yeah, we try to get it out sooner than that. Um, last year I wasn't very well, which didn't help. Richard had to step in and finish it off. Mm. Uh, but we normally try to get it ready for early December if we can. Brilliant. Looking forward to that, as always. Well, it should, uh, be, should good. be good. It should, it should. You know, there's no because it's a PDF. Really, we can we can let it get as big as it as big as it comes. People mm. say to me, "What's the word limit?" And I say, "Well, we don't have one as long as it's good. If it's good, it goes in. If it isn't good, yeah. it doesn't go in. Um, so we can handle, you know, some meaty things in the magazine, which is great. That's the advantage of it being PDF. Excellent, excellent. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. And now you came on the show fairly early in the run, uh, number mm -hmm. seven, and we're on uh, 30, 33, as wow. my uh, grandfather would used to say. And <laughs> um, 
since you, since you came on, Nick, um, we've introduced a number of new features, um, but one of them is War Games Room 101. Mm. And um, you didn't get to have a go at this, so I think it's only fair that my previous guests uh, should uh, get chance to get rid of something that they hate. And yes, we understand it's a broad church and everyone enjoys the gaming, but we do all have our pet hates that we want to get rid of. And this is a, a safe space for us to rant and rave about something within the hobby. So um, uh, have you had a chance to think of something? Well, um, not really, but uh, I think all the good stuff's already been taken. But as we speak, um, there's been some stuff going on over the last few days, which is starting to rattle my cage a bit. Um, oh, and, you know, you're, you're a tweeter, Ken. Oh, you I like to hang about on Twitter. So it's not really a gaming thing, but it is a kind of an attitudinal gaming thing, I think. And I think mm. I'm, I'm seeing lots of worry in the, in the hobby about what's going to happen to Twitter, because Twitter is a nice space to hang around for wargaming mm. generally. The, the community of Wargamers on Twitter is really supportive, very positive stuff, very easy way to share messages with people, very easy way to connect with new gamers doing different things. And lots of people I know are worried about, you know, the changes that Elon Musk and his, and his minions and cultists or whatever they might be, whatever you might refer to them, are shaping things up at Twitter. I don't know, lots of people are thinking about going to do something different and setting up their own chat rooms. And I'm just saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, you're fragmenting what is a fantastic community. Um, you know, please, 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 unless we absolutely have to, let's not fragment what is one lovely space into 150 different spaces where we all have our little behind, you know, behind the bike sheds conversations. The great thing about Twitter um, for Wargaming at the moment is that, you know, you're out there in front of everybody and everybody can see, it, everybody can connect. If we all go underground into these little rooms, um, who's going to find us? How are they going to find us? Who are we really going to talk to? And so my pet hate at the moment is 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 that conversation. And the fact that even have to have that conversation is, is driving me nuts. And when I see it on Twitter, it's one of those things where I'm, you know, you know, when you type a reply and then you think, oh, no, I better not send that. Because, you know, you just think, ah, it's just driving me mad. So let's stay together as long as we possibly can on Twitter. Who knows what Mr. Musk plans to do with it? But it's a great community and we would really miss it. I would miss it. I'm sure you would too. Um, so, yeah, that, that's my that's my pet hate right now. It might be different next week, but you asked me today. Exactly. Well, I can hear the door to the vault opening behind me um because i am in total <laughs> agreement with you um and um it summed it up for me last week twitter because i posted um usual sort of stuff i post every day and i posted uh my shell splash tutorial mm. and within three replies i got a picture of henry cooper <laughs> and kevin keegan splashing it all on yeah and that just for me is just absolutely brilliant yeah and Twitter has been a cesspit before Elon Musk got involved. Yeah. And it's just, the t it's the tiny corner that we have yeah. Yeah. that works. Well, it is and a cesspit. I, I can't see that changing at all. It's still a cesspit now. If you put your head outside the wargaming world and go into yeah. other bits of Twitter, you know, you'll yeah. wish you never went there because part of it is just horrendous. But the bit that we're in, um, yeah, and, and, and the great other thing about it is, of course, it's, we've got no gatekeeper, really. Um, you know, we've got the moderate the moderation of Twitter, which isn't 
you know, which isn't that fantastic. Let's be honest, you can post almost anything on there. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's unmoderated. And once you start to have smaller rooms and they get moderated, you know, you, you're giving power to other people to, to control the conversation. And I don't like that either. No. And I, th- I think the, 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 the diversity in what is being done is something that I really enjoy about it. Because I, if I go into my little room with 28 military Italian wars, I'm not going to see what John Savage is doing exactly um, with his British Prussian stuff. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to see, you know, what, what you're doing at large days. Um, and I would much rather have that and a broad exposure to all sorts of the hobby than kind of being, like you say, hidden in a, in a silo. Well, I couldn't keep up with it. You know, a few years ago when we had all different uh, forums for different things, and I know they still exist, by the way, all these different forums are still there, but I can't, I, I don't have the time to spend, you know, 10 minutes on that one, then go on to another one, then go on to another one. You spend all your life moving between rooms and having the same conversation 100 times. I'd rather just shout into the void that is Twitter and, and for my yeah. message to disappear forever. Uh, but at least I've checked, at least I've, you know, I can sit there and do it all in five minutes. And if I tweet, if my tweets go past, as you say, I can be, I can be putting a thumbs up to your Italian figures at, you know, one minute and I could be looking at John Savage's stuff, the next tweet down. And then two clicks later, I'm looking at a game that I've never seen before because somebody else has replied and I'm seeing something totally new. So let's not fragment it. In fact, the door has closed behind us. All those Twitter naysayers mm. have been locked in room 101. Um, and they're they're in left. there with pale blue rivers <laughs> and unpainted flag edges and uh, rivet counters, uh, point systems. Um, I've got a nice little uh, collection behind me. Pale hopefully blue the, rivers the... is a brilliant one. Who put that in? Uh, that was my uh, friend and historian, uh, Stephen Barker. He writes yeah. uh, World War One books um, and uh, pale blue primary school. He used to be a primary school headmaster. Yeah. Uh, and he just said, I'm just sick of going to shows and seeing you know, otherwise really good-looking games that look like something one of my kids has done. <laughs> I know exactly what it means. I also know yeah. that it's bloody hard to get rivers to look really good. Um. It is. <laughs> it is. But uh, and, and, and that caused a bit of a storm on Twitter, actually, because a couple of people got annoyed about mm. the Blue River thing. But mm. and I, I, I caused, I caused a, a bit of a hoo-ha with me Bill Hook's review yesterday, so I'm just used to it. Yeah, controversy follows you around, doesn't it, Ken? It it does, mate. I don't know why. I think I'm quite a friendly bloke, but people get really upset. I say what I like, and I like what I bloody well say. Ah, bloody Captain Boycott here. I'll bloody fly when I bloody like. (laughs) We'll set off from Leeds Bradford Airport, come back 20 minutes to Leeds Bradford Airport, because anywhere outside Yorkshire is bloody shite. Hail and pace at their best. Anyway, we've digressed (laughs) on a number of points here. Sorry, Um, Yeah, it's supposed to be about it's supposed to be about war game in this. I'll day. try and re- I'll try Stay and answer focused. the question you posed to me. That would be the easiest thing to do, wouldn't it? Ask well, that's me a not question. Help, is it? <laughs> I'll be good. So um, we've quite a lockdown, and um, you seem to have gone uh, <laughs> right. I'm just going to live on the continent as a result. And, uh, <laughs> what one of those trips was uh, your battlefield challenge? 
um, which will forever scar my memory by seeing Sydney in that white coat. Um, but <laughs> just tell us what happened and where you went. So the Battlefield Challenge is something that we've done a couple of. We did one before lockdown where Rich and I went to Best in the Netherlands and did the um, explored. Sydney sets us a challenge. He says, I want you to go to this place and find out what happened and then turn it into a scenario. So he's done it twice. Um, and we've done it. We, he sent us to Best in the Netherlands. That was a really good trip. And what we do is we turn the trip into a YouTube film, which goes on Two Fat Lardy's YouTube channel. Uh, so Best is on there. And then we turn it into a scenario, which goes in Live Magazine normally. I think the last one went in Live Magazine. Can't remember now. Anyway, uh, this year he sets a different challenge. We're out of lockdown. He sets the challenge of going to the Merville Battery. Now, the Merville Battery is on the western flank of the D-Day uh, perimeter, um, further west even than Pegasus Bridge. Um, mm. So uh, it was the target of um, uh, D-Day 9th Parachute uh, Regiment landed there under, under Colonel Otway. Um, and it wasn't really something I knew that much about, to be truthful. I'd never been there. I've done lots of the Normandy battlefields, but I'd never been to Merville. Um, and so we had to go there, research what went on. A bit of intensive reading uh, was required to find out what happened and where. And then the idea is we'd go out there, tell the story, explore the battery, um, look at the battlefield, walk the ground uh, and uh, enjoy a, a bit of you know French cuisine and and uh, and a touch of beer while we're there. And it's great. We were out there for, I don't know now, three or four days, Rich and I. Um, and it was fascinating because it's one of those places, you know, it's what might have been Merville. Because, of course, at Pegasus mm. Bridge, they land right on top of the bridge and they all run out and you know, up the Oxen Bucks and all that stuff. We all know that really well because it went really well and was successful. At Merville, they didn't have quite the same luck. Um there was supposed to be a group of guys that were going to land right on the middle of the of the battery, you know. So in 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 amongst all the casements, there's four big casements, four big concrete bunkers uh, with guns in, plus other concrete bunkers with sleeping Germans in. Um, but they're supposed to land these gliders, and they were going to land them right on top of the bunk, uh, right on top of the battery, you know. So the wings would smash off the gliders, and all the guys would jump out, had flamethrowers and sten guns. But the, but the gliders that were supposed to do that coup de man never arrived. They went down somewhere else. So the guys that were supposed to be, but the guys that were supposed to be attacking from the south of the battery did get in. Um, and it's a really interesting little story. Um, and they, they kind of get in there and they, and they smash the guns up a bit. They, <clears throat> they, they don't quite take the battery, but they put it out of action for a period of time. And then they have to um, regroup and pull back. And the Germans do take over the battery again, but the guns are kind of firing on a much reduced uh, schedule and they have to re-attack in a couple of days, etc. Um, yeah, really nice story. And we tell the, we tell the tale of what happened at Merville uh, in that Battlefield Challenge, uh, which is on our YouTube channel. So anybody who wants to watch that, watch Rich and I make tits of ourselves in, in France, um, go and have a look at it. We um, visited there when we were on holiday a few years ago um because when my when my lad was younger um he loves a good bunker right yeah he loves he, he loves he a doesn't. bunker so we were on holiday and, and like he you know you get those pamphlets of places to visit and he was just looking for bunkers bless him um so i didn't know much about the merville battery story until mm -hmm. i went there and um if i remember right it was just like a little hood hut 
where you pay your money to go in. Well, there was when we went. Not anymore, mate. It's all very high tech now. They've got a, they've got a oh. posh hut. They've got like a no, it's a proper um, fairly modern building there. Um, so you have to oh. pay your entrance fee to go and have a walk around. Yeah, it was it was like it was like my granddad's shed, and there was some old bloke in there, and you you give him a few francs, <laughs> and uh, well, it was euros then. It was your, it wasn't that long ago. Um, <laughs> Not quite like yeah. that now. They've got they've got a little visitor centre there. Um, um, and uh, they've got a, a C47 out there as well that you can look at, and you can still go in all the bunkers. There's different displays in all the bunkers. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's one, I think the last one is like an audio-visual display of what happened on the night of the attack, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's I quite I think I nice. remember that one. It is, do you have, like, shells going off and smoke and yeah, stuff that's inside? It. That's it, yeah. Yeah, it was good. And there's a little cavalry down the road because when – after they've attacked and they and they pull away again afterwards, Otway and his men regroup at a, at a calvary, um, which is about half a mile away, I think, from the from the battery. And Otway sits there with his head in his hands. So we did this piece to camera. We said, oh, wouldn't it be great, Rich? You sit on the calvary with your head in the hands, and then you can tell us your story of what happened uh, at the calvary. So he's sitting on the he's sitting at this calvary. And uh, the French are the most inquisitive nation on the planet. I'm standing there with the camera and every car and van that goes around the corner, because it suddenly becomes the busiest street corner in the whole of France, is looking and stopping and staring at us and wondering what these stupid English guys are doing. And um, have you got a bleeper, Ken? Am I allowed to say a rude word? The, the... You, can, you can say rude words. So on Richie, the Richie's saying, why don't you fuck off? Because they're just stopping and staring at us. We're having to film this thing about 30 times. It's hilariously funny. If he ever does an outtake of the Calvary scene, I think it would be the biggest selling, uh, biggest hitting element of, of our YouTube channel, to be honest, because it's hilarious. Uh, yeah, that's a definite. We definitely need a uh, <laughs> battlefield uh, trip um, <laughs> outtakes without a shadow of a doubt. I think we use the um, Major and Mrs. Holt Battlefield guides when we okay. went out there, I, yeah. I always find those very useful because they they yeah. like tie the um, the trip in with like individual stories about the, the battle. I think they're very good books. Yeah, the um, uh, who are they? the um, oh gosh, the Battleground Europe series are really good as well for mm. just about everywhere that's that's in northwestern Europe, including um, the airborne landings around that western, sorry, eastern side. Did I say west earlier? I meant the eastern side of the of the. Yeah. Um, of the DJ beaches. Um, yeah, they're really, really good. And there's a book by Stuart Tootle, which um, mm, title of the book escapes me, but it's about the story of the attack on Murphville Battery. And that's a sort of, you know, it's about a 400 page paperback and that's a really good read as well. Do they have fold out maps? No. It's a bit of a negative that. Well, the answer is I you like get the GS, get the GSGS ones and um, get them yeah. printed. That's what we do. I like it when you open a book and you have a map and it comes out of the. Mm. I'm showing my age now, aren't I? No, I know what you mean exactly. I know exactly what you mean. The official histories used to be good for that. First World War official histories, they're good. Yeah, for my um, my books on Mesopotamia from yeah. the Imperial War Museum have got all those. Yeah, in, uh, those and ones they're I was absolutely thinking of. amazing. They're not particularly good maps, to be fair. Um, no, but they feel good. Quite... They feel nice because you're unfolding them. It feels like there's something worth looking at here. As opposed to just yeah. having a piece on a page. It's funny that. Yeah, it's a re really good, really, really good. 
So, um, I know you've spoken about this a couple of times on other podcasts, but uh, I'm sure you will regale the story to us here on Yorkshire Gamer. Uh, and that's your involvement in a games day at the Hartenstein Hotel, um, just outside Arnhem. Um, so, did you just ring them up and say, clear that bloody museum rubbish out, we're doing a game? How did it happen? Um, as, as I remember it, as I remember, you know, Jasper at Wargame Soldier and Strategy yes. magazine. So he's he's associated with the museum in some way. I can't remember what he, I can't remember he, he cleans the toilets or something. I can't remember what he does, but he goes there. He, he's part of, he's involved with it in some way. And uh, he had a discussion with them about, you know, maybe we could have a war game event. Um, so they said, yeah, okay, well, who could do that? So we were invited to, to organise it. Um, the museum didn't really know what to expect. They didn't really know what a war game was, to be honest, I don't think. Um, so, you know, we, uh, it was very much left up to us to design something that they could put in, in the Hartenstein. And of course it was really special for us because we, the, the Hartenstein really means something to anybody who's, who's associated with the Battle of Arnhem or Upper Market Garden or even seen a bridge too far. And when you go there, you know, even as a museum, it's a great museum, the kind of little hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And so when they said, you know, um, how about putting a war game on? You know, I thought I was straight in there because it was like, yes, absolutely. Uh, of course we would. So then we thought, shit, how do we actually do this? Because it's quite, um, you know, it's got to be something a bit special. Uh, and we, as you say, we told the story quite a lot. So to cut a long story short-ish, um, um, we put a team of guys together to deliver what we thought would be a really good war gaming event um, targeted at non-war gamers that would tell the story of the perimeter at Oosterbeek. Because we thought about what game should we do, because Arnhem, of course, is, is obviously about the bridge as well. You know, the Battle of Arnhem is about the bridge. But we were at Oosterbeek, which is eight miles or so from the bridge. So it seemed only right that we would do a game that incorporated what was going on at the museum, at, at the Airborne Museum, which was the headquarters of the British Airborne Division. So we wanted to include the museum in the table somehow. But then we had the challenge of actually, well, if we do that, of course, the, the, you know, the building itself is the headquarters and the fighting is around the perimeter. So we want, what we want to do is show the perimeter, but we also want to have a model of the building. So what we designed in the end was a U shape, effectively, upside down horseshoe of the top of the perimeter. That kind of famously described as the thumb, isn't it? The thumb shape with, yeah. the, with the base of the thumb on the rind. And around the top of the thumb where your nail is, um, sort of in the, if you put a nail through the middle of your thumbnail would be the Hartenstein. So we said, right, that's the Hartenstein. What we need to do is show some fighting to the north, to the east and to the west of the hotel. So we had three tables, one to the west, one to the north, one to the east, um, that told the story of the fighting that was going on during the last days of the perimeter. And they're three quite different tables because to the east, you've got the what's called the famous, um, it's the main dressing station crossroads where you have um, the first aid posts and the main Utex of egg coming up from Arnhem. Uh, so German Stugs are coming up and, you know, trying to attack into that position. Uh, and it's very iconic. Lots of photos of that location. And mm. of the buildings that are on that crossroads, two of them still exist. You know, so, <clears throat> so you can go and see them and they're, you know, very much as they were in 1944. The other one, the more famous one of the lot, the Schuenord Hotel, was destroyed and is now rebuilt as a fairly ugly um, cafeteria bar, but it sounds good beer. And uh, so we had that that table and we thought, well, this has got to be a really well detailed table. 
we wanted it to be a really good representation or in fact a replica uh, of what was going on at that crossroads because we had good photos, good aerial photos and good accounts of what had gone on. I know a bloke who knows a bloke who knows a bloke. We we knew that Alan Sheward, who you will recognise in the hobby as being yeah. somebody who makes fantastic terrain and is a great um, scratch builder of, uh, you know, these, mm. these games are real spectacles if you see them at Partizan or whatever. Uh, well, we know Alan. So we said, Alan, how about, how do you fancy having a go at this table? And of course, he didn't need a second invite, you know, because the same as us. The prospect of being involved in a game, you know, at the Hartenstein was, was you know, more than he could tolerate. So he was in there straight away. So him and AD can focus on that table, and they did a really good um, replica of that table. It looks fantastic. The photos are brilliant, and supported yeah. by Martin Nicklaus from Germany, Motorai, he's known as on Twitter, who paints some beautiful, beautiful toys, and we used his toys on there as well, and they look brilliant. So that table was was looked after by those guys. I did the Northern Perimeter table, which was the more urban setup that people have probably seen at the shows around the UK. Um, it's not as good as Alan's, but it's been out more often. Um, you know, it's, it's the ugly sister by comparison, but it gets more dates. Um, yeah. So, and that's been really fun to do. A lot of 3, 3D buildings from Paul Edwards telling the story of the, of the collapse of the Northern Perimeter road by road as it gets closer to the Hartenstein. Um, and then on the west, we had a much more open table at Sonnenbergerland, which is uh, basically a country estate with a with a straight sort of ride, country ride that goes through the estate. At the bottom of the ride, the British had some 17-pounders and the Germans attacked with some um, old French Charbies that were modified to be Flampanzer tanks. So we thought that's a bit of that would be you know, a bit of interesting variety for us for a scenario on there. So we played that game, and that was a different table. And Richard kind of looked after that one on the basis that it gave him less to cock up. So we didn't give we didn't <laughs> want to give him that much. Um, so we just kept it simple for him and gave him that table. And the three went together. Alan did a model of the Hartenstein as well. So the Hartenstein was in the room, and we had these tables around it. And we play, took the game, played them at the hotel using chain of command. But didn't play them for wargamers. These were for people who would want to walk in the room and learn what we were doing with toy soldiers. What is this? What are you doing? We're playing a war game. It works like this. I throw some dice and then we do stuff. So we were giving people little snippets of action that they would play out. So they were slightly different tables to the ones that you would have chosen if you were a wargamer because there are more interesting tactical scenarios that we could have developed yeah. but none of them would have told the story in the same way as those tables so he wanted to tell the story uh long and short of it is that it was a it was a very very successful more successful than than we'd hoped really we were kind of a bit scared that people were going to walk in and say how dare you play a game you know when yeah. when you know many people people die here and here you are playing a game of toy soldiers but i think we presented it in a way that was um respectful and you know demonstrated that we were there to learn about how the battle went and could use the war game as a what i say is we use it as a lens use it as a lens and then you can explore what happened and people were able to see what happens it's a little bit more interactive than simply walking around the museum and looking at the vicar's machine gun in a glass cabinet yeah i i, I think it's um we had a little chat at partisan didn't we and um one of the things i said to you then and um I'll repeat for the audience is um, that the quality of those tables was just absolutely amazing. And to me, it was entering into that 
railway modeling world because railway models are always miles better it, than we are sadly um was there a, an element of pressure to produce um quality for you know you know the location it's obviously going to be a big opportunity for wargaming so was there a, a level of pressure there to produce something of that standard um i think i think we created a bit of pressure for ourselves i don't think there was any, any pressure at all the museum didn't know what they were going to get so we could have we could have turned up with our pale blue rivers uh, you know and and, and 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 played a game with unpainted figures as far as the museum was initially concerned but then when we showed them what we'd done i think they were absolutely gobsmacked um so we created a pressure for ourselves and said look we're taking the game to the hartenstein let's be honest it might be the only time we ever do it we're certainly the first people to have done it so let's make sure that we you know we, we do a good show we put in a good effort and we were able to do that kind of model railway level scenery mainly because of 3D printing. So we could produce, if, if we were asked to do it five years ago, you know, we couldn't have done some of those tables because it would have all had to have been scratch built. But now because of 3D printing, I went out there in May and we're taking photos of buildings around the perimeter uh, and sending them back to Paul and Paul's turning them into 3D prints. You know, so mm. you've got this ability to create something in detail that you've never had before. Um, so that we did, I think we did create our own pressure for it to be good. Um, you know, I, I see when I go around war game shows, I see loads and loads of fantastic tables. And I, and I see many, many tables that are better than the one that I took to Arnhem, that Northern Primitive game. Yeah. It's a very crowded table. Um, you know, yeah, OK, it, it looks very nice, lots of detail in it. But you know what? I don't think we I don't think we succeeded in achieving something that other gamers can't achieve. It's not as if we say, oh, this is the best table that's ever been made, mate. It's not like that. It wasn't like that at all. We did the best that we could or the best that we were able and willing to put in in the time available. And I'm really pleased with what we got out of it. And it's, you know, as good as some of the good stuff that's out there. Alan's table will be, I think, a partisan next year. Um, and he will take it around the shows a bit more next year. Uh, so get to see it because, you know, he's even done the tram lines in the road outside the hotels. And we had quite a lot of discussion on the WhatsApp group about what... What does the tram line look like? Because apparently it finishes outside the hotel. And because we oh, knew that people locally would be coming and we knew that, you know, um, I don't know, that the local expert on tram history from Arnhem was probably going to walk in the door. And the last thing we wanted him to say was, oh, very nice table, but you got that wrong. So we really tried to get things, you know, as accurate as we could. And... We had lots of local visitors and you know, people were coming to the museum. A woman who worked in the museum came and had a look about what was going on. And she said, I know the person who lives in that house. And she phoned him up and he came up in the afternoon. And he said, oh, my God, you, cre you created my house in miniature. Adrian, Adrian Deacon had done it. And um, he was able to tell us all the story about the house and everything. His family's generations of his family lived in it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we couldn't have achieved that with just our, if we'd done blue rivers and unpainted figures. Yeah, um, and th and that was the story I was hope you hoping you were going to tell. I would have prompted you if you hadn't. Um, but the uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, he was the, great the because story... he said this house. Oh, this is this is my house. And we said first thing we said to him was, "What did your back garden look like?" 
because we were trying to work out what the back of the house looked like. And he looked around and said, oh, it's really good. You know, it's, it's, they've got this shed and that shed. Uh, and then he said, oh, the house next to me, that was a sweet shop. And the man two doors down was in the resistance. Uh, and then another house three doors up the road um, after after Arnhem, a, a V2 rocket landed in the back garden and didn't explode. You know, get, just able to get this story that went with it. And on my table, uh, on the northern perimeter table there, where we had the rows and rows of houses, People were saying, you know, recognising the road and saying, I grew up in that road. Um, and they were telling the story about all the civilians that were hiding in the cellars, you know, which is something we don't often think about. And when you've got 30 odd houses on the table, you suddenly think, gosh, each one of these has got a family hiding in the cellar. Because in Arnhem, the war came overnight. You know, it it just literally came in by parachute and, and was there, um, you know, two hours after it had been peaceful before. Amazing stories. And I suppose that's the sort of thing that we're seeing in Ukraine now, isn't it? With tragically, um, yeah. everyone having a cab camera and, and seeing that sort of things of, of families sadly trapped in cellars for, for a number of days. Um, the engagement that you got from the public um, seemed to be really, really positive, as you said earlier on. Do you think that this is something that is a potential for war gamers to spread to other locations yeah i think there's loads of museums that could benefit from you know having a war game event i mean it can only i don't know that it would necessarily double your numbers but it will certainly double the interaction of the people that are there i think mm. um you know so there's i think of museums all across the uk i think the royal armories might do something already around war gaming um yeah, up, we've, up in your we've neck of the woods been in, yeah we've been involved um I did Jutland for the World War One weekend that yeah. they did, and um, because our club has a close relationship with them, we're, we're doing Pavia in front of the Pavia display. I don't know if you've oh, yeah. seen it. There's, yeah, a, there's a knight on horseback and a load of guys, full size, Fantastic. Um, with pike and stuff. So we're going to be in front of there in a couple of years' time. Well, that would be great. That would be paint. great. And I think I think if I was to pass on one bit of learning from my experience to you, Ken, it would mm. be you know. That these events are so much better when you get people people who are able to turn their faces to the audience as opposed yeah. to just gamers around a table because that's when the interaction happens um and you know I'd, yeah, I'd love to do more of it i mean having said that what we did in arnhem it cost us a lot of money for a start uh we were out there for five days and you know on our expenses bill that's quite a big hit um yeah. and i don't know that we could you know all oh, come back and do it again next year well maybe maybe we could but i don't think you know, I, I think we kind of burst our bubble a bit this year. I don't know if we could do that again uh, in the same way next year. But I think there are other museums definitely where I'd like to, you know, like to take something to them and play there. Imagine playing Trafalgar, you know, on board HMS Victory. There we go. That's in a that's a life goal. Uh, oh, exactly. In and the there grand was, cabin um, at the back, we could play Trafalgar. Wouldn't that oh, look that would great? Be amazing. There was some guys on the Naval Wargaming group in on Facebook who did a game inside HMS Belfast. Ah, yeah, uh, a number of years ago. Um, so I'm I'm trying to push that again with my World War Two stuff because I think that would be perfect location <laughs> for it. But yeah, um, Wargamers out there listening, uh, I think it's a great way to promote the hobby, um, and I think we're kind of past that stage that we were maybe twenty years ago where you know it was people would laugh at you for playing with toy soldiers i think um society in general has grown up a little bit more and um see it as an important tool for studying and learning about history so i think it's a, a great opportunity to do all the stuff 
Um, so has your stomach recovered from all these trips then? Um, <laughs> My stomach is a resilient beast. With the, the number of um, War Games photographs of you talking to members of the public at the table and playing the game is probably inversely proportional to the number of pictures of you drinking beer or eating <laughs> a nice meal. So... <laughs> Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I, I must be one of. I, I think you know. Um, I must be. I must be becoming one of Wargaming's biggest bores. I think because you know, I was, seems to be the only thing I talk about at the moment is is what we did in Arnhem. But uh, um, you know, people are very interested, in it, which is great, and I'm really happy to tell the story. Uh, but yeah, we like to enjoy ourselves, you know. And and, it, and you know, Ken, it's uh, you put a lot of effort into these games, and it's nice to relax. A huge part of the gaming is the is the social side of what you do and why you do it and who you do it with. Um, and we had uh, we had a good bunch of guys in. We had an international group of guys uh, in Arnhem. So we had Dutch guys, Belgian guys, English guys, German guys there, um, and we enjoyed ourselves. Yeah, we did. We had a nice time. We, as I say, we blew the hospitality budget in one go, really. Um, and they've got some great bars in Arnhem. You know, there's the Tap House in Arnhem. If you ever go, so the Tap House, they've got one of these systems where you walk in there, and and down the middle of the bar which must be, sorry, down the middle of the pub, which must be 100 yards long, I guess. Um, they've just got a row of taps. and So you can pour your own beer. So you have your little credit card that you have to buy from the bar. You charge it up, put your 40 quid on it, whatever you want to put on it, and then you put it next to the tap, and then you pour your own beer. And I'm not kidding oh, wow. you. I think I think we counted there are 55 beer taps on one side and 55 beer taps coming up the other side. So if you can't have a good night there, you never have a good night anywhere, are you? Exactly. And I, I think it's fantastic to see. I think if we all spent more time in the pub drinking and having a good laugh about wargaming instead of writing shitey comments about <laughs> what we do on the internet, then the world would be a lot better place. Yeah, they don't sell technically bitter, though, Ken. Was it? Oh, no, they don't sell any Yorkshire beer out there. Do they not? No. I'll bring some over for them. <laughs> get get uh, special delivery from Masham. <laughs> So just to finish off this little chat on on Arman, Arnhem and just move away from the gaming thing itself, mm. um, and I'd be interested in your, on your opinion on this because I, something I've been pondering on is why do we as Brits and, and, and the Dutch as well, but I can understand more for the Dutch, spend so much attention on Arnhem. It's fascinating, don't get me wrong, um, but it didn't go particularly well at the end of the day. <laughs> Um, you know, so you know, the drive to the roar or something like that would probably be better if we were going for a three-point victory away from home. Yeah. Um, so, so what what do you think it is with Arnhem that that draws us to it? Well, I think it's got a bit of everything, isn't it? It's quite romantic. It's got the airborne element, the para you know paratroopers defending mm. last ditch stand, God save the king, and all that stuff. Um, so it's got that romance. It's it's that classic British. Um, heroic failure, isn't it, as well? Yeah. Although, although interestingly, I think we see it now as a failure in the way that it was never seen as before. Um, but the more I read about it, the more I research it, the more I visit it, the more it becomes apparent that the Germans won. Um, mm. and that you know, and and through their and through their own good actions as much as anything else. Um, but yeah, it's a heroic failure, it's got a bit of everything. It's the Nairly story, I suppose. And of course, it's been immortalised in film, hasn't it? Which drew everybody into it. Not everybody's seen a bridge too far, um, you know. And it, 
I'm going to say something controversial. You know, it, as far as most people are concerned, it tells an okay story. If you, if you understand the story of Bridge Too no. Far, then actually that's a reasonable platform to 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 use as a start point to understand what actually went on. Yeah, it's um, it's. I remember going to see that the pictures. Um, I can't remember how old I was, but I was relatively young. Uh, <laughs> um, and I remember coming out slightly dis, dis um, disillusioned because we'd lost. Mm. And I think that was the first time that I ever realised as a young lad that the British could lose <laughs> um, or it could not go particularly well. Yeah. Um, but now, every time I see that film, I watch it. And uh, when my lad was at primary school um, in his last year, they had to do like a project on World War II. So we sat down and we watched Bridge Too Far and he, he wrote a little two-page thing and drew, drew a load of stuff about it. So that always brings back lovely memories of sitting there with my lad and um, and uh, talking about the, the, the film. So, uh, well, we've taken people out there. I've taken quite a few friends out there to visit various points on Howell's Highway. And, uh, and every time we go, I say to them, well, watch the film before you go because that will give you some kind of understanding. And then when we're out there, you say, okay, you remember the bit with Michael Caine? Yeah, when he says, yeah. start the purple? Well, that's here. That's where we are now. And what happened here was blah, blah, blah. So it gives them at least a grounding. Um, it's, got, it's got a bit of everything, I think. And if you as a war gamer, of course, it's got, you know, it's got a variety of German units. It's got American paratroopers. It's got German um, SS. It's got tanks, mm. British tanks. What, what more do you want? I've been making actually um, earlier on today some uh, some Vile crossings of American paratroopers in their in their little boats for the Vile crossing. Oh yes, Paul yeah. Edwards has made some little goatly boats, and I'm putting some paras in for jump off markers for the Vile crossing game, which is possibly the most one sided game we've ever played. Brilliant! It's um it, it's certainly uh, popular all over Britain, and we all, we all talk about Arnhem. We all do stuff with Arnhem. And I just wanted your thoughts on that because we we did take a hell of a beating as that uh, Norwegian commentator once <laughs> said. Well, we went a bridge too far, Ken. That's what it's all about. We did. They should they should do a film about it, mate. They should, yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And they used the wrong Absolutely plan. <laughs> Apart from that, so talking of plans, then just to uh, just to finish off, um, what uh, is in the future for for Mister Nick Skinner and the Lardies? Well, we've uh, we've got a few things in the bag now. Under COVID, lots of different hairs started running, um, mm. and, and everything went not very far because we couldn't get together to do it. Now we come out of that games days permitting, and you know overseas trips permitting. Things are now starting to move forward again. What a cowboy is going to be coming out soon. That's um, oh, brilliant. If you play What a Tanker, you'll be able to pick up What a Cowboy um, really easily. So it's a good fun game. John Savage has been driving that. And it's very, very close to being ready to be released. I'm uh, hoping to be able to turn that into what a geezer. <laughs> well, with yeah. the with the cow with the cops and robbers stuff. Yeah, I'm sure you will. I'm sure you will. Actually, I must send you a link. I saw a good van on eBay that I thought would be right up your street. Oh, um, I'll send you a link. Um, what else did I? What else are we doing? Rich is working on the Far East supplement. He was yeah. he um, he's getting quite excited about that. We're still doing Market Garden. I've still got to finish the supplement. The good news about the trip we made to Arnhem was that Richard and I spent, um, well, apart from spending five days in each other's company, we also spent six hours each way locked in the car, you know, talking about 
the way we wanted the campaign to work. So we unblocked the last couple of blocks on that. So yeah. we now ju it's just now just the hard work to get that through to fruition. Um, then what else is there? I don't know beyond that really. I can't see beyond that at the moment. I've been stuck in Ireland literally like first airborne. Yeah, uh, and I need to um, get that finished, and then I can get on with some other stuff. I'm really keen to get back onto my Mexicans. I want to do some Alamo. Yes, Mexicans. You, were, you, were, you were painting Mexicans last time we spoke. Yeah, still Has doing that. that. It's a burrito um, too far. Well, no, it's still it's still there, it's still doing it, and I'm still hoping to work on it. The bad news for me is, of course, that um, that Nick Futter has sold Boot Hill miniatures to Brigade Games in the states, so all the toys are now in America, whereas I was going to buy them from Nick. And I've been really good. I've been pacing myself and saying, don't go mad, Nicholas. Only buy what you need. And then when you're ready to get the next unit, you can buy them. And then bugger me, he sold the lot. So um good and good and good for him. I completely I've spoken to him. I completely understand why he did that. And and mm. I hope I hope he made a load of money from it. Um but it means I've just got to change my plan a little bit. But I'm still gonna do that because it's good fun. I need sure. a distraction, Ken. I've been stuck in Market Garden, which is a very heavyweight piece of history and i just need to clear my mind and do a bit of fun stuff i fully understand that because i've been stuck in garibaldi world for nearly a year <laughs> and i'm sick of painting red and um these huge one seven hundred scale ships come along mm, nice and now i'm now i'm hooked on those <laughs> and I'm, I'm i'm buying all these um photo etch benders and all this sort of stuff that I've, I've never heard of in my life. <laughs> Do you have photo etched benders in Yorkshire? Surely not. Well, <laughs> I can't say anymore. I can't say anymore. I'll tell you, I tell you what I did buy today, and it came through the post. Um, one 700 scale photo etch sailors. And all yeah. I can say is they are fucking small. Yeah. They are tiny. They must be. Wow. What are you going to put so, them? So, um, I've got, I've got some. I'm building some merchantmen at the moment. Uh -huh. um, so they, I'm going to use them on the merchantmen first <laughs> and see see what they look like, yeah. and then if they look good, I'll um, add them to the guns and stuff on the destroyers. Wow, nice. So, so there we go. Um, so the um, 400 page full color second edition of "Is the Lord Spares Us." <laughs> is um still still in planning is it mate yeah it's still there um there's uh, uh gosh there's a guy on facebook who's a first world war in the middle east i think he is on facebook and he's just oh, right. be, he's just been out to to gaza and palestine and all the places um where my great uncle fought and sending back photos of these amazing locations where the action took place in 1917 so um i've, I've had my sort of my appetite's been tickled a bit by those. Uh, yeah. I, I can't see. I'm not at the moment, Ken. I can't see myself going back I know, there yet. Right. I'm. Uh, I'm just pushing it for my own personal reasons. <laughs> you swine! You. And uh, yeah, I'll be putting a big game on it, uh, Steel Lard again this year. So, uh, which reminds Excellent. me, I need to sort that out because it's only next weekend. Isn't next it? weekend. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Is there anyone? Myself. Is anyone coming up? I think. I think. Um, so I, I I had to duck out earlier in the year because we've got a domestic yeah. clash this weekend, um, mm. and Richard was going, but I think he's had to pull out. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, Richard and I won't be there. Is Sid going? Sid might be there. Can't remember now. He'll be doing he normally his, goes um, up north. Bonsai bonkers. Bonsai bonkers. Exactly. Yeah. We played that in. Has he changed his mind yet on that? 
Well, it's called um, something else longer than that, but yeah, we just call it Bonsai something Bonkers. Rubbish. <laughs> yeah. Bonsai Bonkers yeah. is the working title. Uh, that's what we know and love it as. Yeah, I think if it came out as anything else, sales would drop dramatic, <laughs> dramatically. I think Bonsai <clears throat> Bonkers, you, you're going to... Yeah. Um, what's that big toy company, Ham, Hambro, Hambro or whatever it's called? Hambro They'll Boy. pick that up, mate. <laughs> it'll be it'll be bigger than Monopoly. Yeah, I'm sure it will be. Well, you, all it'll you be... need to play is 18 square inches of tabletop, so you, it is a bonsai game for it'll be for bonsai Barnsley people. Bonkers, Birmingham Bonkers, Bristol Bonkers. It's just endless, mate. <laughs> Absolutely endless. Well, once again, Nick, it's absolutely fantastic to speak to you. Um, really enjoyed that chat tonight. And uh, I'm sure we'll bump into each other at the next show that we're both at. Nice talking to you, Ken. Thanks very much for letting me come back on and uh, keep up the good work. I'll keep going with those ships. They look bloody brilliant, mate. No worries. Um, look out for a 48-foot uh, by 18-foot table at a show near you very soon. <laughs> I don't think we're going to miss it if it's that big. <laughs> It'll be the only table in the show. Well, I've done. I don't know if you've seen. I've got those little shell splashes. Mm, they're only nice. they're 50, 50 millimeters in French money. Um, I've got some battleship ones I've done now, which are one hundred and forty millimeters. Um, and uh, my wife's um, thinking of using them for Christmas trees. <laughs> okay, so, there we go. <laughs> Thanks very much, Nick. No problem. Take care. So there we go, two hours and 24 minutes in. Um, we've come to the end of our catch-up episode and we've had three chats with three very different guests, um, all of which are fantastic to uh, see and speak to again. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed those little uh, mini interviews well for yorkshire game of the mini interviews anyway and if you haven't listened to the original episodes with my guests tonight then i um suggest that you pop back in the archive and have a listen to the the full episodes with them which are normally a couple of hours long uh, so we get to go and delve into lots and lots of stuff which is absolutely fantastic just leaves me to uh, mention my uh, next episode, um, episode 34, and uh, hopefully my guest will be Rohan Saravanamutu, and I hope I've got that right. Uh, I'm sure Rohan will uh, correct me if I'm wrong in the next episode. And uh, Rohan has a book out at the moment through Hellion, and uh, that's called Leipzig, The Battle of Nations. We mentioned Leipzig earlier on when I demonstrated my maths capability and uh, it's obviously the 210th anniversary yeah you'd think I'd practiced that before of the battle next year and uh, Rohan has uh, brought a book out uh, just getting some ideas together some scenarios about how to put together what was the biggest battle of the Napoleonic Wars often neglected here in the UK because uh, we had a uh, rocket battery and uh, a couple of uh, officers there. Um, we weren't really involved majorly in the fighting. Uh, ten tends to take second fiddle to Waterloo for us Brits, uh, but it's a, a fascinating battle. 
absolutely massive. I'm lucky enough to have uh, played it on a humongous scale in the past, and uh, it's 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 on the bucket list, I think, of all. Uh, big Battle Napoleonic gamers. And uh, Rohan is certainly that. He's been gaming for over 40 years. And uh, if you look in the background pictures of the War Games Holiday Centre, you might see his face a couple of times. So I'm looking forward to that. And I hope to have that out with this uh, increased pace uh, in a couple of weeks' time. So until then, see you.